Uh, hey, Alice, we got kind of a, a different episode of Rogue Fun, a podcast story this this month. Yeah, we have an extremely excellent interview with the man, the myth, the legend, Hal Hickel himself, who was the animation director on Rogue One. Rogue One, as well as every single one of your favorite movies since about 1996. <laughs> uh, a, a true legend of visual effects and animation. Uh, and... Alice, we've already had the interview. We're recording this after the interview. Uh, it was such an honor and a pleasure and so much fun to have him on the show. I, I think that everybody out there who listens to this is going to learn something about the production of Rogue One uh, that will make them see the movie in new, interesting ways. Yeah, we talked about so many different things, including the, the reshoots and some of the scenes from the trailer that didn't make it in the movie. Um, but we also talked about the industry in general, and we talked about Hal's resume and all of the amazing films that he's worked on. Uh, everything from Pirates of the Caribbean to the uh, Phantom Menace and beyond. Um, really incredible stuff. And uh, I'm just so excited to present this interview to everyone. Yeah. So uh, without further ado, uh, Happy New Year. Welcome to Rogue Fun, a podcast story. And shall we let our past selves take it away? Yep. Take it away, Buddy and Alice. <laughs> Welcome back to Rogue Fun, a podcast story. I'm Alice White. And I'm Buddy Duquesne. And joining us today for a very special interview is Hal Hickel, animation director at ILM. A four-time Oscar nominee, three nominations for the Pirates of the Caribbean trilogy, the original trilogy of the Pirates of the Caribbean, and one nomination for visual effects on Rogue One. You're also a one-time Oscar winner, for uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest. That's correct. You you uh, you have that all correct. <laughs> Excellent. Hal, thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited to talk to you. Thanks. Um, I'm excited to be here. It's um, we're we're so excited to talk about Rogue One. Uh, but we'll get there first. We wanted to talk to you a little bit about your uh, your education and your background in animation. Where did you? When did you get started with animation? And um, what inspired you to get involved in the industry? Um, there was an animation program uh, when I was doing a ten year stretch in Angola prison. For, no, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I got interested in this. Uh, in the same way that many people I've, I've noticed in visual effects, uh, which is because of watching, uh, you know, sci-fi horror and fantasy films as a kid. That basically is what got me started. And the film in particular that, that got me on this path was the original 1933 King Kong, which I saw on television in the probably, probably around 1971 or so when I was, uh, still a little kid, and um, so seven or eight. And my uh, mom helped me draft a letter to the local TV station because I was angry at Kong's treatment at the end of the movie when, they, <laughs> when he's killed. And uh, so I held them responsible, the local TV station, so I wrote a letter. But I got interested, because of that film, I got interested in uh, stop-motion animation. And, um, you know, there's no internet then and not many periodicals devoted to that kind of information but there were fortunately two good books on the making of the original king kong and i managed to find both of them and read them cover to cover i still have my copies actually and so i started making super eight films and then a few years later in 
in um, 77 when I was 13, Star Wars came out, uh, as well as uh, Close Encounters that same summer, actually. And both films really kind of cemented my interest in visual effects and expanded my interest in visual effects, because up to that point, it had all been about stop motion and Ray Harryhausen, et cetera. And now I was interested in, you know, matte paintings and miniatures and the whole range of things, um, animated effects. Uh, in fact, one of the things in Star Wars that really caught my eye was when the Jawa zap R2 and those little blue electrical arcs crawl all over them. And mm -hmm. um, there was, fortunately, right after uh, that summer, uh, there was a good magazine article on visual effects. It was the first good magazine article I ever read on visual effects. Uh, it was in Cine Fantastique, and they did a, a double issue on Star Wars and Close Encounters. And one of the cool things they did was they interviewed a lot of different people on the on the visual effects crew for Star Wars, um, one of whom was this guy, Adam Beckett. Adam Beckett had head, headed up the uh, part of of the visual effects process of, for doing things like those electrical arcs or laser bolts or the lightsabers, those kinds of effects. And, um, and he had mentioned going to California Institute of the Arts. And so I set my sights on CalArts uh, um, and was fortunate to get accepted um, after I graduated high school. And so I was there for a bit, but um, I got scared of the uh, debt. I was <laughs> accruing <laughs> from tuition. I love the school uh, dearly. I still love it to this day. They have an awesome animation program there. It's, it's just a great art school generally. But um, but so I, I bailed out after a year and went back up to Portland, where I was from, Portland, Oregon, and got work at a little local place doing uh, motion graphics work, which was related to the interests that I had at the time. And, um, and then a few years later, moved over to doing getting back to my roots, doing stop motion at Will Vinton Studios, which was a clay animation studio there in Portland that did um, at the time was was blowing up because of a, a, an uh, advertising campaign they were doing that were based on these characters called the California Raisins, which were <laughs> this this device for selling <laughs> selling raisins. And they would they sang Motown songs. They were kind of a, a blip on the cultural radar in the 80s, but they created a lot of work for this studio. And that studio, Will Vinton Studios, has since become Lycus Studios, which did Paranorman and Box Trolls and Kubo and the Two Strings, etc. But when I worked there, it was mostly commercial work and some half-hour specials we were doing for um, ABC that were related to those California Raisins uh, characters. <laughs> but anyways, uh, so I worked there for six and a half years, and it was great. It was a small studio, but we were doing, you know, for for that kind of work, pretty high-profile stuff. And... Um, and it was a great group of people and I learned a lot and really liked being there. Um, and then um, uh, I got uh, another lucky break. Uh, you know, one lucky break was, was getting into CalArts. Another one was getting hired at Vinton's. And then the, the really probably the biggest single lucky break for me was um, learning that Pixar <clears throat> desperately needed um, animators to get Toy Story finished. And they were putting out feelers to animators everywhere um, because at that time there wasn't, you know, a worldwide network of great animation schools and, and, and online programs and things creating a whole wealth of, of talented animators that we have today. Um, so companies like Pixar were really looking for anyone who could animate characters and then they would teach them to use their software, which was pretty user-friendly. But, um, and I was looking for a way to 
take that next step. Because even though I like Rick and Ed Vinton's, my goal was still to get into feature film visual effects. That's that's what I wanted to do. Um, and, and Jurassic Park had happened. And so stop motion clearly wasn't going to be the way forward for that kind of work anymore. So this was a very lucky thing for me. So I sent a reel down to Pixar and I got hired there and I animated on Toy Story. And, um, and then when that film finished, I had a hard choice to make because Pixar was obviously a wonderful place to be. And Toy Story was, you know, went over really well and, and there was going to be a great future there. But I still really wanted to do the, the sort of Ray Harryhausen thing, the visual effects thing. And ILM was just across the bay and um, they were getting ready to do a sequel to Jurassic as well as more Star Wars films. Um, so I thought, you know, if I'm ever going to do it, I've got to do it now. And I had shots on my, my demo reel now from Toy Story, which, you know, I figured would help give me a leg up. So I sent over a reel and got hired at ILM. And that was middle of July, 1996. And that's it. I've been there ever since. I've been too lazy to leave. So... <laughs> Wow. What, what an amazing trajectory, though. I mean, we we laugh when, when you say California Raisins, but I have nostalgic memories of that ad campaign. Oh, yeah. Like, it, it, was, it was really kind of, I don't know, there's something about California Raisins that, uh, yes, a blip, but a significant blip. And then the to be there at the beginning of Toy Story and or, or, or Pixar really right and just yeah uh, kind of being in that moment must have been just an incredible uh, confluence like of just like time and talent and technology all coming together to make something that revolutionized film as we know it it's so cool I do have a question for you about stop-motion animation though yeah uh, I have been looking at some of the uh, works that you've been involved in, uh, including Toy Story, Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, you know, uh, Super 8, and also the one that, that really stood out to me was Pacific Rim. But he's a uh, huge Pacific Rim fan. I, I am oh, awesome. such awesome. a huge Pacific Rim fan. Uh, and the feeling that I get from a lot of the visual effects in these movies is that they are... Uh, immediately believable that they have a weight to them and a mechanical depth to them that uh, makes sense even in these fantastic worlds. Uh, and that's also true of Rogue One, and I promise we're getting to Rogue One. But, <laughs> you, you know, you mentioned Ray Harryhausen and, you know, things like Jason and the Argonauts, and it didn't really click with me until we started kind of doing some research and preparing for this talk that a lot of like what we know and love about like Pirates of the Caribbean, especially kind of gives me that Jason and the Argonauts vibe uh, right. where, where these characters are, are being brought to life to have sword fights. I don't know. It, it never, <laughs> it never really got like through my head that that was like a, a clear inspiration, but uh, how has claymation especially, you know, continued to be an influence on your work uh, and are you thinking in terms of claymation when you're doing digital effects? Um, kind of. I, I mean, I definitely, I think it's definitely had a big influence on my work. I mean, part of the reason for that is that um, there's a part of stop motion that's not really related very much to um, movie visual effects. And that is things like, for instance, Wallace and Gromit or 
uh, or the California raisins that we were doing, which is to say that they were highly stylized, kind of uh, cartoony, if you, if you want to use that term, um, styles of stop motion. But the technique itself has a strong connection to visual effects because of people like Ray Harryhausen and before him, Willis O'Brien, and people after him like Phil Tippett and Jim Danforth, and David Allen, um, for using stop motion as a technique in visual effects to create realistic creatures. And so because of that lineage, and, and that was the reason I got interested in stop motion to begin with, it was because of that kind of work. So there's a sort of um, history there or a, a connectivity going all the way back to, again, the original King Kong and even some films that predate King Kong um, that are directly connected to the kind of work I do now, which is still you know, creating hopefully realistic creatures and droids and things that fit into live action films rather than highly stylized cartoony stuff. Um, although occasionally we're dipping our toe into that. We did Rango a few years back, for instance, and that sort of thing. But just to say, so yes, I think um, there's that, there's sort of a, a genetic DNA kind of thing, uh, visual effects wise that is connected there, but also just in terms of practice. Cause I know a lot of CG animators who came into um, CG animation from the 2D hand-drawn world, and they bring lots of great uh, uh, aspects of that kind of work with them into CG. Things like, you know, really solid posing and silhouette, things you get from when you're drawing a character in two dimensions that um, are just so, so important. Um, on the flip side, people like me who came into it from stop motion, I think perhaps there's a there's a kind of spatial awareness and an understanding of a character in three dimensions and the limitations of the character that need to be respected. That is uh, really good a really good background for the visual effects uh, animation that we do in CG. Meaning, you know, if you're animating a puppet in stop motion, and the puppet sort of uh, strains to the limits of its uh, let's say the length of its leg, you can't then just arbitrarily stretch that leg to make it longer. I mean, the leg is only as long as it is. Like right. There's a little metal skeleton inside and it's a rubber puppet and <laughs> that leg is only as long as it is. Um, and, and so you design the motion around that, the physicality, the actual real three-dimensional real world physicality of the puppet and having it be balanced and knowing where the balance point is in the puppet because you can feel it in your hands when you hold it. I think those things help inform you inform your animation when you move over to CG, even though now you can do all kinds of crazy, you know, things that don't, that you couldn't do with a, with a, um, a physical puppet. So yeah, I think it's, it's helped inform my sensibilities about it for better and for worse, because the, the flip side of that is, you know, in two dimensional animation, it's so free. Like you can literally stretch characters like Taffy and do crazy things that are, that are hard to do possible to do in CG, but hard and really hard to do in stop motion, but still possible, but really hard. Um, so there's, you know, you've got both sides of it. You've got people coming into it from 2D who maybe have a a greater sense of, of how, what crazy they can go with things. <laughs> um, and then people could come from stop motion who maybe have a more grounded sense of, you know, this is a physical uh, even though it's in CG now, this is a physical thing and I need to kind of respect its physical parameters and make it feel weighted and balanced. And so those, you know, you can, you can kind of see both sides of that, but, um, but yeah, definitely it's informed. The stop motion background has, has definitely informed how I look at things and approach animation for sure.
yeah, it's funny you should mention Rango, especially as a as a CG animated film. It is for me one of the movies of the last twenty years that gives off like claymation vibes without being <laughs> claymation. Um, and and it really does come down to these exaggerated characters behaving in ways that you would expect. And I, I feel like that's so like integral to the staying power of that movie for me, especially in the visual department. Uh, but it's the same thing for the Pirates trilogy as well, right? Where we've got these wacky fishman characters uh, <laughs> that that behave the way you would expect a wacky fishman character to behave <clears throat> with limitations. I I feel like uh, that that vibe is so important to the way that these movies still look great. Uh, they they avoid some uncanny valley that a lot of people talk about with these CG characters, uh, especially yeah, mocap. Yeah. Um, and and I feel like that is part of the like visual DNA of Rogue One as well. Uh, when we talk about visual effect shots from Rogue One that really stand out to us, we talk about how they like feel right in in really. Alice, you and I, like, lack the vocabulary even to describe it sometimes, right? Uh, it's true. Uh, in the one of our last episodes, we were talking about... Um, we were talking about the Battle of Scarif, but we were talking specifically about the shot where the, um, where the Corvette runs the one Star Destroyer into the other Star Destroyer. Yep. Uh, which is one of the all-time great shots in all... Not just all of Star Wars, but maybe all of sci-fi in general. It's so beautiful. But sometimes we look at the at the Star Destroyers as we're watching it, and something about them makes us say the word Lego out loud. It, it, <laughs> because some, some we say Lego, and it's not to be like, oh, it looks like a toy, or oh, that clearly looks like a miniature. It's to, for some reason, saying that looks like a Lego to me means that looks like something I can physically hold in my hand, something yeah. that I know how it's going to break when it, you know, when it hits. Um, because it's grounded in reality, even though you know it's a giant star destroyer that that doesn't exist in real life, but yeah. it still feels tangible. No, that's that's a big part of our work, whatever it is, whether it's Davy Jones or uh, Gypsy Danger or the the star destroyers, is making things, giving things surfaces and and details so that you can sort of just immediately imagine what it would feel like to put your hand on them. Yeah. Um, you know, K2SO, same thing. Um, so that's a big part of it. And and also, I should, right up front, I, I should mention right away, our visual effects supervisor on Rogue One, John Knoll. John and I worked, have worked together on seven or eight projects now. And we're good friends. And John <clears throat> not only was the visual effects supervisor on, on Rogue One, but he conceived the story of, of Rogue One and pitched it to Kathy and got the green light to make the film. And... So, and we can talk about the genesis of the film when you guys are ready, but I just want to bring him up because John has so much to do with why the visual effects look so great. I mean, I can pat myself on the back and I'll talk about my contribution to it and all, but I have to mention John and also Gareth Edwards, the director. Gareth has oh, yeah. a tremendously good eye. You know, not all directors are super visual, which sounds maybe surprising to some people that not, not all filmmakers are visual, but some are more um have more facility with actors and with story and writing but not so much with actual visuals and they rely on their gp and other folks to kind of uh help them create 
the visual look of the film art director and so forth. But Gareth is, is a director who's very visual and he started out in visual effects doing uh, visual effects uh, as a visual effects artist, but also on his, for his first film monsters. Um, and he's just got a great eye and, and would give us just really terrific um, feedback on the, on the shots, very specific, you know, uh, detailed feedback, which is great. Um, that, the best thing you can ask for. So anyways, I just want to kind of tout those two folks uh, right up front because they have sort of everything to do with how great, uh, and Greg Frazier, the, the DP, of course, and, oh, you know, yeah. I could go on and on, but particularly in terms of visual effects, um, John and, and um, Gareth really deserve a ton of credit for how beautiful the film looks. Yeah, um, particularly I mean, you all did such an such an amazing job. I imagine that the team involved there are so so many people that that make a, a movie work. Um, but especially at a place yeah. like like ILM or, or in a in a in a group where where the visual effects are, are so important to the movie, like a Star Wars or like a Pirates of the Caribbean. We were just right before you signed on. We were talking about how amazing still to this day Davy Jones looks and and how how good those I mean that that's that's the Dead Man's Chest is the movie that you won the uh your Oscar for right yes that's right you did I mean gosh it's such an amazing uh piece of work it totally holds up still to this day I mean it's been however many years and and Davy Jones still looks as good as he did on day one, yeah. I think. Um, I wanted to talk to you. I wanted to ask you about specifically, like working with these with these teams that make these amazing um, these amazing shots work. I wanted to maybe rewind to um, to a let's rewind, say, to uh, working on the Phantom Menace, which just so happens. I'm picking that one because it just so happens to be one of my favorite movies. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I do. I do love it so much, uh, but I want to talk about say you're developing the Phantom Menace or you're you're involved in the visual effects department of the Phantom Menace. Yeah. Uh, what does a typical day look like in the production department um, when before the movies even come out when you're still developing ideas for it? What does a day at ILM look like? Um, yeah. So it's it's interesting you mentioned Phantom Menace because that was only my <clears throat> second project at ILM. So at that time I was an animator. I started the project as an animator. Um, I ended the project as a lead animator. I got sort of bumped up in the middle of it to be a character lead. But um, so at that time for me, uh, get to work at nine or a little before, um, usually dailies would be around nine or maybe 9.30 or maybe 10, depending on what phase of the project we're in and so forth. But dailies are the first sort of organized thing to happen. Um, and you, we'd all, you know, all the animators, um, would file into whichever of our view stations. And these are sort of kind of like small theaters. They have a, you know, chairs and a, a decent size screen, um, not a movie theater size screen, but, um, but bigger than, you know, we're all, uh, we're all looking at on, a, on our monitors and Rob Coleman, who was the animation director on all three of the prequels would join us and he'd sit up front and drive the. You know, but essentially, it's it, you know, it's like running a computer. He's got a mouse and a keyboard, and but but a really big screen that we're all looking at, and um and he just files through all the shots that are in progress and gives us feedback, and we all talk because that's the culture at ILM in dailies is that, you know, everyone's encouraged to speak up and share their thoughts on on other people's work, um, and then the animation director, animation supervisor, um makes clear, you know, at the end of the discussion of each shot that, uh, 
you know, what exact notes to hit and which ones to ignore. And then you move on. So that's, so we start with dailies and then the rest of the day as an animator, most of it is me back at my workstation, at my desk, animating on whatever shots have been assigned to me. Um, there might be other things that, you know, there might be a production meeting that everyone's expected to attend to get sort of updates on the production or various things like that. But for an animator, most of the rest of the day is animating. And then in the afternoon, you might have what are called walkthroughs, where if you've made progress on your work and you want the animation supervisor to come through, give you feedback, you send a note to the production office saying, you know, put me on the list for walkthroughs. And then you know that the supervisor is going to stop by sometime that afternoon and look at your work at your desk and give you feedback. And that's typically day for an animator. Again, there might be other things like we would have a, we have a thing at ILM called quarterlies where it's just a way to share the work that other shows are doing um, so that you can see what other uh, projects in house are, are working on and kind of get an update on their work and that sort of thing. But in terms of the actual production of a project, that's it. Now, as an animation supervisor now, for instance, on Rogue One, my day is very different. <clears throat> I might have dailies right away in the morning with my animators, and then I might have, or actually before that, I might have dailies with our crew in London because of the time difference. I might have an early morning days with them at 8 or 8.30. Then have dailies with the animators in San Francisco, uh, or maybe a co-dailies with them and animators in Vancouver because we're on the same time schedule. Um, and then the rest of the day will mostly be back-to-back -back meetings of one kind or another. You know, there might be a, a meeting about a very specific topic, like some complicated character or rigging or visual effects problem that needs to be solved. And we'll have a meeting about it to talk about how we're going to tackle it. And then another meeting that might be a more general sort of production meeting about kind of here's where we're at in the show and what are we trying to accomplish in the next two weeks? That's sort of a kind of a meeting. Um, then there might be a, a review with the director. Um, usually those are done remotely because, you know, we're in San Francisco and the directors are often at location or they're prepping a new project or wherever, but they're not in San Francisco. So we do those, um, again, in these same kind of view stations that we do our dailies and only now instead of, uh, having the whole crew there, we've got the director on a video feed, you know, and, um, and the work is up and we can discuss the work that, that, uh, via remote feed. So we'll do that. Um, and, you know, that's those kinds of things sort of fill up the day and, and kind of pack the day. Uh, so, you know, it's a little different now than, than it was <laughs> back when I was just animating. It was simpler when I was animating because all I had to worry <laughs> about was, was the shots that I had assigned to me. And now, um, you know, I've got a lot of other things to worry about. But, but by the same token, I don't have nearly as many things to worry about as, for instance, the director of the film. So, you know, it's all, sure. it's all relative. So according to your Wikipedia page, um, and, and maybe this is, I know, I didn't write it myself. There. I promise a, I did not write it myself. I know that's a silly way to start a sentence, but I'm going to do it anyways. According to your Wikipedia page, um, it says here that you are responsible for the movement of the droidica, the destroyer droids. From, yes. um so that's amazing. First of all, they're they're very cool. Um, I wanted to ask uh, on that line. First, I wanted to confirm that was true, um, and then I wanted to ask along the same line: Are there any other um, like specific characters or specific like pieces of of not just in, in Star Wars, but maybe anything else that you're particularly proud of that that were like your idea and your um, like your your work? 
that that maybe that that stick out like as particular highlights of your career? Well, there's there's definitely stuff that um, I take pride in having played a role in, uh, you know, because film generally is very collaborative. Visual effects is very collaborative, particularly in this age of CG effects. You know, you you don't really have people like Ray Harryhausen anymore who sort of did everything. You know, Ray had some help, but largely he was a one man band and he did it. Um, so it's hard for me to point to things and say, that's entirely mine. But I know what you mean. And there are definitely things along the way that I take, you know, great pride in, in having participated. One of them you mentioned with the Droidicas, um, it's a great Doug Chang design. And I used to give Doug uh, grief about it having three legs, because if you look around in nature, there just aren't any three-legged animals, and there's a reason for that. <laughs> there really but, aren't. <laughs> but he told me, uh, he said, you know, he, he when he designed it, his intention wasn't for it to be a walking droid. His intention was it for it to be a sort of a gun platform. And so in other words, the three legs were really just sort of a tripod for it to stand on. <clears throat> but it was George that said, well, I want to, I want to see these things walk. So, <laughs> so that, <laughs> that fell to me. And it, and the reason um, Rob Coleman, the animation director on the prequels um, assigned that to me was because I'm a robot nut. I've got, you know, it's my desk at work is covered in tin toy robots and things like that. And so he, and I had done, uh, as the show was ramping up and before there was anything really to animate or do, I had grabbed one of the um, pit droid assets because for whatever reason, just due to how it, the production was scheduled, that was one of the few animated characters at the time that was ready to animate and, and it was a droid. So I grabbed it and just animated some goofy stuff with it. And so Rob, I showed it to Rob and he's like, well, all right, you like droids. Here's, a, you know, here, why don't you do this droid? So... Um, so part of that was figuring out this three-legged walk and, and George kind of wanted to feel like a gunslinger. So, you know, it was kind of factoring that into it. And, um, and then also how it rolls and unfolds, which was really fun to, to figure out. Um, yeah, the, so the droidicas, I, I just got to say, thank you. Their movement <laughs> is so iconic. It's and, so cool. <laughs> uh, it's, it's weird how much fandom there is surrounding specifically just the droidicas or maybe it isn't weird but i remember when they were when they were being reintroduced into the most recent battlefront game uh and people flipped when they announced that droidicas would now be playable everybody loves a droidica that's um, awesome uh and and so yeah just thank you for that uh they are super cool the gunslinger thing i had I never, never thought considered about that before. that's really cool um, but the way that their guns just kind of pop out and then they start firing yes exactly so cool yeah wow um, <laughs> and so then rob put me on uh he said all right you're gonna i'm gonna make you a lead uh, character lead and he put me in charge of boss nass and oh. so boss nass was fun to do he's a big you know larger than life character uh a great voice behind it and um all those, you know, fleshy jowls woggling <laughs> back and forth and all that. So, um, so that was super fun. And that was, uh, and it was, you know, I always, you know, I, I've said many times that I, I always call Rob Coleman the, the nicest guy in show business because he really is. And he gave me great opportunities, both with that character, but also um, he, uh, on the, on uh, Attack of the Clones, he in, uh, brought in Chris Armstrong and I as sort of under supervisors because the shows were, were so big that he kind of wanted more support. And, and he urged Chris and I to, uh, when we had work to present to George, rather than uh, Rob saying, well, you know, I'll present it, he would push Chris and I in front of George and say, you guys present your sequences. And so 
I always be grateful to him for that. And he, um, and he taught me lots and lots about being a good animation supervisor. So, um, but so he, we, we did, um, so he, he put me in charge of Boss Nast, but also um, I got some really great Watto shots. I wasn't the lead on Watto. Uh, Linda Bell was the lead on Watto, um, but I just, he assigned me some shots that I really loved. Like when uh, Qui-Gon's trying to use the force on Watto and he said, what, you know, you're waving your hand around like that, you know, <laughs> I'm a third area. <laughs> yeah. Mind tricks don't work on me. And um, so that was really fun to animate. And, and uh, in fact, I, I did that before um, he put me on boss Nass. but, um, but anyway, so that was Phantom Menace. And then on, and then actually between Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones, I got my first um, bump, up to my, my first opportunity to be an animation supervisor and it was um not star wars it was on um uh artificial intelligence the steven spielberg film oh yeah so you know i was stressed out and scrambling to take you know to handle this new role as an anim soup and my son was just born around that time and um so it was a big you know it was a very <laughs> crazy busy uh year or a year and a half but as that was finishing um, Attack of the Clones was in full swing, and that's when Rob was like, "All right, you're, you're finished with that. Now I need to I need a soup to help me out on Attack of the Clones." So he brought me on, and so on Attack of the Clones, I was kind of handling, in a way, sort of overflow stuff that where Rob was just maxed out. Was like, "Please take this and make sense out of it." And so one of the things was the, the whole droid factory sequence. So, okay, um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and I, I have to say it was uh, kind of a lot of hair pulling, but it was also fun um, but it was the whole it was the whole thing of like if you saw the plates that came back of poor natalie portman running around on this green conveyor belt dodging <laughs> green objects and then we looked at that and we're like okay we have to make this be a conveyor belt with machinery around her that makes some kind of sense and you know a lot of that felt to doug chang and his group designing the machinery and deciding okay this is a stamper and this is a welder and this is a grinder and blah 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 but the anim team under me, we had to figure out how to fit that together with these live action plates. And we also wanted it to make a kind of sense. So actually, if you watch that sequence from the beginning, from the moment they fall off the little retractable uh, thing and, and land on the uh, conveyor belt, mm -hmm. at the beginning, <clears throat> they're just ingots, these square glowing ingots. But as the scene progresses, if you just pay attention to what they're doing, what the machines are doing and what's happening to those ingots, they get turned into the curved um, breastplates of the super battle droids. So oh. we actually made actually made it make a, a kind of sense. Um, but it was also just insane trying to, <laughs> trying to animate <laughs> I, all these. It yeah. sounds machines. like a remarkable challenge, but the, that scene, that sequence in particular is so kinetic and like <laughs> satisfying Despite the fact that, again, uh, the the real life plates that you were looking at were just characters <laughs> running around on green things, um, yeah, it, it's uh, yeah one of one of the highlights of the prequels, I would say. It's so much it, fun to watch. The, I the, I think I did notice the, last time about how the things were being developed from. Oh, that's yeah, great <laughs> about the the breastplate. I was at the I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> um, yeah, the footage I, looked like that show Wipeout. If you've ever seen that, where people are jumping over and dodging things, and not, that's what Natalie Portman looked. She looked like a contestant on Wipeout. That's amazing. Yeah, and then um, and the other thing was, um, let's see what, a lot of the Camino stuff with the Caminoans and and the fight yes. between Django and Obi Wan. Rob handed that off to me, and then the um, 
the battle outside of the arena at the end. So the tank droids, you know, the whole droid army versus the clone troopers um, out outside the arena at the end. So that was uh, uh, thrown at me as well. So it was good fun. It was good, you know, it was good, complicated, crazy stuff to work on. Um, And there was, you know, on every show, you've got stuff that you're jealous of, though, where you're like, God, I wish I was working on that. So, like, (laughs) I loved the creatures in the in, inside the arena because there was very ray harryhausen um but didn't get to work on any of that and also the fight with yoda and, and deku at the end yes um and the funny thing there is that we all i'll say it we we sort of doubted george's concept there we were like uh you know this should be like um gandalf and uh saruman uh you know two great wizards fighting you know using the force uh, they didn't shouldn't even use their lightsabers right away. It should just be the force. <clears throat> and um, George is like, no, no, he's got a. I want him jumping around like a little frog, like he's got these super frog <laughs> lights and he's jumping around. And we're like, oh, it's gonna be so dumb, you know. And he was so right. Like it was the thing that everybody wanted at the end of that movie. I remember seeing it opening weekend with just like a regular crowd and people just went crazy <laughs> during that part. Of it. I was like, God, George was so right. And, it did and, turn uh, out really cool. <laughs> nah, it was great. And, bunch of really good anim Tim Harrington, a bunch of really good animators at ILM worked on that. And I remember at the time being like, man, I just want one Yoda shot. And Rob's like, you're too busy. <laughs> you can't, I'm not giving you anything. You've got oh, enough man. on your plate. <laughs> well, I, I do, I do want to stick to Star Wars. Um, yes. And I want to roll over to Rogue One, but really fast um, before I move on, I think my mother would actually kill me if I didn't ask you about, um, I'm looking at your credits here. You worked on Van Helsing. That is my mother's favorite movie of all time, I think. Is and, it really? Yeah, my my mom is obsessed with that movie. She's seen it a hundred times. Um, and so I think she would kill me if I didn't ask you about your work on, on Van Helsing. Well, I will say my involvement in Helsing was pretty limited. It was okay. one of those cases where um, the movie was most of the way done, but they were in the crunch time at the end. And again, the Anim Soup on that, Danielle Jeanette. Uh, just, you know, it was like, Hey, and I had just rolled off of, I forget the timing of it, but I, whatever it was, I'd rolled off a project and wasn't on anything else yet. And they're like, could you come on and just take a few sequences and supervise them? So it was kind of some of the really crazy stuff at the end where their characters are like falling and swinging on cables and (laughs) doing all this crazy stuff. And it's a lot of digital double work. Um, so that was my involvement there. So it was pretty limited. I actually animated one werewolf shot myself just because that, you know, again, I had the bandwidth to do it. And, um, but so I, unfortunately, uh, I can't, uh, you know, claim a, a, a huge role in that film since it's your mom's favorite film. <laughs> I know. I just had, yeah. I had to say something because <laughs> she talks about it a lot when she's, she's not a huge movie fan. Like she doesn't watch a lot of movies, but when she finds yeah. a movie she loves, man, she sticks to it. So huh. st- we that's, still watch it every October. Because it sounds um, a lot to. like you're you're a little bit like your mom. Then when you find a movie that you love, you it's really <laughs> latch on to it. Is that yeah, kind of what I'm hearing? If, if if that's our perfect pivot to talk about Rogue One for a little bit, then that's got to be it. No, you're you're you you're right. I'm I'm a little bit more of a of a movie fan than she is. But my okay. um but and I've been a Star Wars fan since since I was a little kid. I mean, gosh, we all of us have been, um, and. Um, but something about Rogue One, well, uh, um, just a, a brief, I wanted to start yeah. this, sh- this show, 
um, because I saw Rogue One at a very particularly... December 2016 was a particularly vulnerable part of my life. Um, my father passed away in early December oh, 2016. Sorry. So when I walked into the theater looking for something to distract me, and then right. Jin and Galen Erso have their moment, <laughs> um, yeah. several, you know, a couple of moments throughout the film, I was shattered. <laughs> yeah, and, well, I can um, understand that. And so something about the movie just really stuck with me. And I kept going back to the theater. I think I saw it five times in theaters when it was. I kept going back to revisit it, and it has really helped me over the last few years watching it and sitting with it. And now with this podcast, being able to talk to talk to other fans of it and talk about talk through my feelings about it have really been able to help me kind of heal through and and grieve through the you know the process of losing my father, but also now. Now we get to, well, now it's given us a chance to talk to you and it's given us a chance to talk to, you know, all these super interesting people in the Star Wars, like, community. Um, and and to be able to sit down and really examine a movie from, you know, like, the little minutiae of it um, has been, it's helped me gain kind of more of a vocabulary on how to talk about movies and to talk to people about movies. Um, where great. before I was kind of a casual fan, Buddy here has a, <laughs> um, has a master's degree in film studies. And, wow. I, and I do not. I was an English literature nerd. <laughs> and so all, <laughs> all of my degrees are in, are in literature and his are in film and media. So now I feel like by being able to talk to my best friend about this movie over and over again and, and engage with the community, I've been given kind of a, a like a, a set of, a vocabulary and a, a set of questions that I'm that I'm able to ask about all movies now. So I feel like awesome. by by sticking to one movie, I have expanded uh, how I how I interact with all films. It's been really fun. That's um, awesome. And it's a super super fun show to make. And so I I guess now we've got to start talking about Rogue One. Yeah, <laughs> it's required. Uh, Rogue One Rogue One is as you said a, a special movie for both of us and our examination of Rogue One has been just just the wildest of rides um, because we we have picked this movie so apart to the point where sometimes when you pick things apart you you get sick of them and you start to notice all of the flaws uh, with Rogue One we continually uncover new depth uh, and new new connections to say other things in Star Wars, or new connections to just our lives or geopolitics. Um, <laughs> uh, and so we we would love to hear how Rogue One kind of came to be um, as as a concept, as a as a story that needed to be told. This could be this could be one of those great moments where. <laughs> I go, you know, instead of like expounding on how wonderful I, I say something like, what? I don't know. Some movie I worked on four years ago. What, <laughs> what do you want from me? No, uh, it's uh, no, uh, it, nothing could be further from the truth. It's um, it's a film that's very special to me, too, um, for a bunch of reasons. I obviously I uh, was the perfect age when Star Wars came out in 77. Um, not only that, I was living on a cattle ranch in the middle of Colorado dreaming of um, going to the stars in, in one sense or another, because I was sort of a NASA nerd at the time. But I was also, as I mentioned before, I was really interested in stop motion and and that whole part of filmmaking and thinking maybe I wanted to go 
you know, make films for a living. So one, you know, going to the stars one way or the other. And, um, and no family connections or anything like that to the film business. There couldn't, nothing could be more abstract at the time. But anyway, so Star Wars comes out. So Luke is a, I'm a perfect target for the character of Luke for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, but also, you know, because of the filmmaking behind it and my interest in that. Um, so then, you know, flash forward all these years later, I'm um, an ILM. So we worked on the prequels. Now, the prequels were not universally beloved when they first came out, as I think you're probably well aware, although they're really experiencing quite a nice um, moment right now, because I think a lot of people who were little kids when those films came out have a lot of nostalgia for them and for a bunch of reasons, which I'm re really pleases me. It's nice to feel. But at the time, you know, there was very much divided opinion on it. Mm -hmm. So then flash forward a little more. Um, when it's announced that, you know, in the, in the Disney era of, of Lucasfilm, we're going to be making more Star Wars films. I was telling everyone who'd listen at ILM, hey, I got, you know, you got to crew me on this Star Wars film, uh, this first Star Wars film, because I, I, you know, I really want to do that again and have another shot at it. <laughs> um, and, uh, and it had been a while, you know, we'd all had a nice break from the whole Star Wars thing for quite a bit. And so we were all excited to get back into it. But then when J.J. Abrams was announced as the director for Force Awakens, he had already worked with some folks at ILM on past projects, um, visual effects supervisor Roger Guyette and animation supervisor Paul Cavanaugh, who were awesome. Um, and just knowing that there was a relationship there already, I knew that I was not going to be the anim soup on Force Awakens. I was, you know, I was kind of bummed. I was like, ah, oh, geez, you know, I really wanted to jump back into that. But it was only a little bit later that John Knoll, who I mentioned earlier, um, you know, we're good friends. And he stopped me in the hallway and he's like, hey, I want I want to pitch the story to you and let me know what you think. And, you know, he kind of gave me the a five minute pitch. And I was like, that is fantastic. And, you know, he said, well, I'm I'm going to pitch it to Kathy, you know. And I said, well, I hope, you know, if, if it gets greenlit, uh, you know, you're going to crew me on the show. <laughs> He's like, what? Of course, of course, yeah. So, um, so I did get green, greenlit, and so, in a way, I felt it was one of those sort of like, okay, the universe is working in a certain way, and I like the way it's working because, had I had I been crewed on Force Awakens, um, I wouldn't have been able to do Rogue One because uh, they they overlapped, and and instead I end up working uh, with John again, my good friend John, uh, you know, which I love, but also on a project that he conceived, which really tickled me that you know one of our own in visual effects that imagine you know imagine this film and then as well the final film i just really love it um i love the era of star wars that it sits in you know uh, two minutes before new hope and mm -hmm. um and you know I, I have to say i feel tremendously grateful because not only that but then now working on mando i'm working on a on a show that's you know five years after jedi so both of them are firmly in the kind of original trilogy timeline and that just really, I love that. Like I couldn't imagine better Star Wars projects for me personally to be involved in. So, and so for lots of reasons, Rogue One is important to me personally and, and a project um, that I love. And on top of which, uh, you know, the film itself, I really love how it turned out. I loved working with Gareth. I love how the story, and even with the different, you know, issues with reshoots and, uh, you know, some of the stuff that happened with that where, you know, all these films had reshoots, but those were bigger reshoots than usual. And there were big changes and things that were painful at the time. Um, but even with all that, 
uh, I'm so happy with the final film and um, and with the whole, the experience of having made it. Because for me, there's always three things on a project. There's uh, what is the experience like of making the film? Uh, was the film successful? Meaning, you know, box office or credits, etc. And then, but then separate from that, did the audiences love it? And usually, you get hopefully you get one of those three. Uh, it's great if you get two of them. And every once in a while, you get all three. And, and you know, this was definitely an all three one. I loved working on it. I loved working with Gareth and John um, and everybody else. And the audiences really dug it, the Star Wars fans especially. And um, and it did well. You know, it did, it did great. It didn't. It You know, it's not the most successful Star Wars film ever made, but that's not the aim, you know. <laughs> but, it, but it did well. So it's definitely in all three. Like, the first part of the Caribbean film for me was like that as well. It was, it was super fun to work on. Uh, audiences really dug it. It was reviewed well, et cetera. So anyways. That's awesome. So Rogue yeah. One, yeah, has a big, big, big place in my heart. And I mean, you know, uh, I mentioned before, I really like robots. Um, and so being able to be involved with creating a new droid to join the, um, you know, Star Wars pantheon, because droids are so important to Star Wars and being in, have, having a role in creating K2SO was just another reason for me to love this project and and how it turned out and everything so yeah i wanted to ask you about k2so who has become such an icon and you know he's a, a beloved favorite i think amongst fans so you, were you part of developing like um like his design and and movement and did you say like did you get to work with alan tudyuk on on like developing the character's movement in in space or um like like what um what went into designing k2 yeah so first i should explain so my role the role of animation supervisor and this is generally true for most visual effects shops particularly larger ones um but specifically with at ilm on any visual effects project we do um, star wars or anything else there's always a visual effects supervisor who's the creative lead for the project and as well there's a visual effects producer who obviously handles all budgeting and scheduling and all that um but for projects that have a significant amount of character animation, whether it's creatures or droids or dinosaurs or you know whatever, then there'll be someone like me on the project, an animation supervisor. So my job is to oversee, obviously, the movement of things, but even things that are going to move, I'll give feedback on how they're modeled and textured if that affects the way their movement. So for instance, with creatures, if I feel like the eyes aren't reading very well, I might say in a review you know even though we're not looking at movement yet we're just looking at the a static cg model of the creature i might say you know those eyes, eyes are going to be a hard read how about if we get some more contrast between the sclera and the iris etc blah 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 okay. but the main part of my work is in a working with the director to figure out what it is they're trying to achieve with the creatures and characters etc and then working with my animators to get that happening and being kind of the conduit between those two groups um so it's basically what I do. So with regard to K2SO, um, Doug Chang, who runs the Lucasfilm art department, he and his group had done tons of iterations, even before I got very involved with the project, um, of different looks for K2SO. And they'd kind of honed in on his final look. Um, so when I came on board and started talking to Gareth about the character, Gareth was keen to explore the idea of maybe having a droid with a more expressive face. Um, and we, we kind of went down a, a, 
a path on, on that in terms of design with K2SO, where we discussed various things. And basically, the, what it boiled down to is that, you know, Star Wars has kind of a style guide. And, you know, it's one part or, you know, whatever, 50 parts Macquarie and 20 parts Doug Chang and, you know, uh, 20 parts Joe Johnson, whatever. But it's there's a thing, Neil wrote us, there's a bunch of designers over the years that have kind of created this this look. And one of the hallmarks of droids in Star Wars universe is that they're not terribly expressive. They don't generally have mouths that smile or frown or eyebrows that move up and down and that kind of thing. Um, 3PO certainly doesn't have any moving parts in his face. I think the, the droid probably... That EV 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 ninety nine is that what it's called the the one in Java Sail Barge that's torturing a droid. Oh yeah. You know it had a little moving flap when it was talking. This yeah, that's plate. That's the only moving mouth I can remember. <clears throat> yeah, it's about as close as you get. Um, and so that's one thing, but that doesn't mean you know as we move forward with Star Wars films that we shouldn't try new things. And so we were having a discussion, talking about it, and trying out and testing things. Um, but I think part of the issue also was that even putting Star Wars aside for a moment is that if you're going to have a droid have an expressive face, you have to go quite far with that. Because just having, for instance, a mouth that opens and closes, that doesn't indicate emotion. That just tells you that they're talking. <laughs> you know what I mean? That doesn't actually indicate that whether they're talking angrily or sadly. That just It just moves. with the, the, You've got to get a quite detailed mouth to start to indicate emotion same with the eyes um you, you need to have eyelids you need to have brows that not just move up and down but can kind of tilt and angle and all this stuff so but that said you could still have a fairly abstract droid face if you look at um short that movie short circuit from the 80s yeah. he oh, yeah. had two yeah he had two <laughs> big eyes but he had these sort of paddles around the eyes that could angle and move and give you a kind of uh, emotional sense uh, same with wally Right. You know, Aww. so anyway, so we had lots of conversations about this um, and we try to test. And, and so for, for that reason, and because of those conversations and because of sort of the historical nature of droids in Star Wars, we decided that probably we didn't want to go to something that had a super complicated metal human ish face. So we didn't we never even built that. We just talked about it. But we said no. So, so then what we did do was we did some tests where um, uh, K2 could blink his eyes. Um, he had these little metal shutters and he could blink them and you could kind of angle those uh, eyelid shutters in a way that could give you a sense of kind of, you know, anger or sadness or even sort of being skeptical and squinty and that kind of thing. Uh, and we did some animation tests with that. And also the eyes could rotate. They could look one direction or another. Huh. Um, and in the end, we dialed back and we decided not to do the eyelids. They felt a little too, um, for lack of a better word, Pixar, like a little too uh, Buzz Lightyear almost, you know, yeah. having these blinks. And you could rationalize them in a robot. They're, they're, you know, they keep out dust and they do the same things that eyelids do for us humans. But in the end, we said, you know, no, that doesn't, that doesn't quite feel like Star Wars. But what we did keep was the ability for the eyes to rotate. So you notice when yeah. Kay is talking and he's kind of, thinking and looking around his eyes will kind of do those little eye scans that human eyes do and lock on one thing and zip over to another thing and that kind of that kind of thing and while that doesn't communicate emotion it does communicate a kind of thinking process that's human that's very human and so we gave him just that little nudge toward toward the human from um 
from what most of the droids in Star Wars have. And that ended up being kind of just a fun detail. But really, um, so that was my role in in terms of how he looks. And then in terms of how he moves, um, you know, we were already in progress on a, uh, well, number one, we knew we wanted an actor to play him on set. So we had all, all been thinking about solutions for that. And the fact that that would then probably lead to a pretty fluid human movement. Now, a human plays C-3PO, obviously Anthony Daniels, um, but because of the limitations of the suit, Anthony came up with a very, obviously a very specific uh, movement vocabulary that everyone's very familiar with, with uh, C-3PO. You know, the elbows are always bent at a certain angle. They can't really extend very much. And he carries his arms kind of high up, et cetera. And he he takes kind of small steps, et cetera. So we talked a lot about Kay and what his limitations might be. And we thought, well, look, he's supposed to be this, like, at least in his former life, kind of lethal security droid thing for the Empire. So for that reason, we didn't think we wanted him to be too limited because otherwise, you know, how scary is that if you if you have to take little shuffle steps or whatever, you know what I mean? He, he needed to seem dangerous or at least possibly dangerous in his former role as an Imperial security droid. So uh, plus there was an idea too, that um, we would see others of his kind on Jetta patrolling the streets and arresting people. Uh, and there's a little of that in the film, but not a lot. Um, mm-hmm. And we do see another of his kind in the Imperial base on um, Scarif. Uh, and I can talk about that in a second. But anyway, so we knew it was going to be an actor portraying him on set. But we also knew that because of our experience doing Davy Jones, where we're doing a character who's performing the character on set and we're going to capture their movements, we knew that because Kay was so tall that we needed to figure out a way to get the actor up to the right height so that the other actors would be looking into the performer's eyes and interacting with them in the correct way. And also just to get the stride length right. You know, if they're going to take big, long strides, one of them really take them and not have a normal actor on set and then have to remap that onto a CG character that's much taller. So um, we worked with the Neil Scanlon's creature group to come up with these stilts that were a little bit like those painter stilts that, that painters and uh, sheetrock people, you know, when they're putting in sheetrock and they need to work on the ceiling and they, they put on those um, stilts that they wear. These were more sophisticated. They were based around an ankle that was uh, created for uh, prosthetics for people. And the ankle was motorized and would sense, for instance, when you lifted your foot off the ground, it would lift the toe just slightly so that it wouldn't catch on things. And so, and it would also uh, uh, compensate if you were, for instance, going up a ramp or down a ramp, a a slope or up a slope. So it made it possible for the person wearing them to have a really natural gait very quickly without any real like training or, or anything. They just put them on, stand up on them and, they could pretty much just go. Whereas if you've ever seen anyone put on those painter stilts for the first time and try them out, they look really clumsy and stiff and <laughs> yeah. like they're, they're probably going to fall over at any minute. Um, so anyway, so we got the, the um, stilts got uh, sent over from the UK over to ILM in San Francisco. And one of the uh, Neil's guys that had built them came with them. And we had um, uh, Alan Tudor come up to ILM. This was about two weeks before uh, principal photography, photography started on wow. Rogue One. And we had him come into our motion capture stage and put on the stilts in a regular motion capture suit. And then we were real-time retargeting his motion onto a kind of simple version of K2SO, which he could see on these big flat-screen monitors that were around him. 
So it's just like an actor putting on a costume and looking at themselves in the mirror and figuring out how to stand and hold themselves to best effect. And so he could see himself as K2SO and he could walk around and decide, oh, it looks better if I don't swing my arms very much or I hold them very stiff. But and, and he could kind of look at his posture versus um, K's because K's is a little hunched if you look mm-hmm. at it from the side. But we didn't want Alan to have to walk around hunched. So we're like, no, you can walk around normally. But if you look on the screen, you'll see how that looks on K2SO. And we'd adjust the retarget so that K2SO would look the way he was supposed to look while Alan could just, you know, walk around in his normal posture. Anyway, so we spent a couple hours doing that. And it gave Alan a sense of how to carry himself and how to move as K2SO. Because on set, he wasn't going to be able to see a real-time render of himself as K2SO. He just had to imagine it in his head. But this couple hours of doing this at ILM... Um, gave him, you know, insights into how to move on set and and, um, and act. And and it was part of his process, I think, of just developing the character generally. You know, he was, at that time, he was figuring out the voice and just the whole uh, idea of the character, his sensibility and his tone and everything. So that was part of the process. And then when they would film his scenes on set, I was there for pretty much all of it. I might have missed it thing or two because all this <laughs> shooting was in London and so I couldn't be there from beginning to end but I'd go over for a few weeks and then come back to San Francisco and then come back and be there for maybe three weeks and then come back to San Francisco so I was there for most of Alan's shooting and you know he and I chatted quite a bit about the character and, and everything I didn't you know he the character is his it really is Alan you know he's amazing he's done so many great uh, on-screen characters but also a ton of great voice characters he's king candy and yeah. wreck it ralph he's he's, he's the chicken in moana he's the, <laughs> he he's the, the does the chicken voice all the all the way through moana it's amazing guy has such range um and then, <laughs> every time um, but, i remember that yeah. he's king candy i get blown away all over again that's yeah it's, it's, it's incredible and he's he's um i can't i'm not going to remember these characters but in frozen he's um yeah he's um Oh gosh, what is the character? Duke of Wessel? I think yes. it's Duke of Wessel. The Weasel the, Weasel Town. <laughs> well, well, then in in yeah in um, Zootopia he's Duke Weaselton, but yeah. in <laughs> but, but in Frozen it's some other sort of weaselish Wes- kind Wesselton. of thing. It's great, Wesselton. Yeah, it's great. I just watched it for Christmas. <laughs> yeah, there you go. He's so. So funny. he's yeah he's he's amazing. Um, so it wasn't like I was in there going, you know, hey, Alan, you know, I think you might try a little more of this when you're, you know, it's just, oh, I, he, but he would, you know, we'd talk about it, and, uh, but he knew where he was going with that. And the voice he came up with is just, it's perfect. The, it's the, so good. W- the scene when we first meet him and they're about to take off in the U-wing and the whole bit that he does with, you know, what are the odds she's, she's going to use that gun on you later? You know, it's hot. It's very hot. You know, that, that whole thing with his hands, oh, it was great. And it was really good for us too, because you know, we were not animating those shots from scratch. We were using his motion capture performance, but there's a lot of work that the animators uh, have to do with, always have to do with motion capture on any project with motion capture, because you have to fit it to the character and then really make sure that, uh, you know, adjust the poses and things so that the character is, is uh, you're getting every ounce out of the ideas that the actor shows on you know the choices they made on set is basically the bottom line because if you just slap the motion capture on the cg character you can kind of see 
you know, it's like, yeah, it's pretty good, but you can really make it sing. A good animator can really make it sing by just pushing the poses a little bit and adjusting things so that, you know, they, they really read and, and look right on the character and all that. And so a bunch of work went into that. And that's, that's exciting. Cause again, we, you know, going back to Davy Jones, we all discovered on that film, cause prior to that motion capture seemed like to animators, it seemed like a scary thing. It was going to sort of take away their jobs and replace them. Um, but working for a lot of us working on Davy Jones with Bill Nighy and the Pirates films taught us that while doing a motion capture character is sort of a different gig than just animating things whole cloth as animation, it's a, still a very rewarding one because you're partnering with an actor in creating a character and it's a really cool process. And so by the time we did K with Alan, you know, we all were excited about that, you know, because we'd learned what an awesome process that could be. And, and Alan was, was just terrific. That's amazing. I love what you said about how the eyes move. Uh, I know it doesn't, like you said, it, when that, when his eyes can, can move around like that, that it doesn't, it doesn't express like a ton of emotion, but the emotion that I get most thoroughly out of the motion of his, of his eyes is um, sarcasm yeah. <laughs> or uh, when he <laughs> yeah. kind of rolls his eyes a little bit when he's uh, annoyed yes. at Jin, um, when they want to leave him behind, when they yeah. go to Scarif and, and stuff like that. And he can roll his <clears throat> eyes with annoyance is one of the, one of the funniest <laughs> things. That's an um, excellent point, actually, that, that, you know, that, that is a communication of emotion uh, just from the rotation of the eyes. Yeah. Rolling it, his eyes and, it's Which so is a perfect fun. thing for Kay, so. It's perfect for Kay, and, and, and yeah, I feel like Alan was such a good choice for, for that, um, for the his range and, and, and everything. It's, uh, K2 is such an awesome character, and um, <laughs> such a wonderful addition, I think, to the Star Wars universe. Um, he is, yeah. Okay. Uh, so you mentioned that uh, K2 has this collaborative movement profile that you came up with. Uh, with Alan Tudyk, but what what about the other KX units? Because you you kind of touched on that. Oh we, yeah. We as close watchers of the movie notice that the other KX units move slightly differently. Yeah. Uh, that they have a smoother gait than K two. At yeah. least that's that's what we're reading off of it. Nope, that's totally right. And thanks for reminding me of that. Because so when they they get into it's clearest when they get into the um, the Imperial facility when they're you know Cassian and and Jin and K are looking for the plans. Um, and we see one coming at them and, and passing them uh, by. And because we only, well, a couple of things. We only had one set of the um, the really high-end stilts, right, for, for Alan to wear. So the actor who's playing that other droid is wearing those, um, you've probably seen them. They're, they look like a kind of curved piece of spring steel or fiberglass or something. Mm-hmm. And like people in Cirque du Soleil wear them. And they can oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. bounce okay. and jump and that kind of thing. So they had a set of those, or maybe it's even possible that that stunt player, they were his own or something. But, and he had also played the one of the K-Droids in the Jetta marketplace, arresting somebody. And, um, you know, that sets up the gag later when, when Jin shoots, shoots the droid and it turns out <laughs> to be the other droid. And, and, yeah. Um, but the one in the, in the facility is the one where you can really see the movement. So we, we had him use his stilts or the stilts, those other stilts, mainly just to have the eye, uh, eye lines and this general speed of the walk be uh, right for everyone, you know, in blocking the scene. But we knew we weren't gonna literally copy his motion the way we do with Alan because the, 
the way those stilts made the actor move just didn't look right for a K droid. Um, but it gave, again, it gave the right sort of stride length and all that. So when we got back to ILM, we came up with a, um, a walk that was kind of a combination of motion capture and, and hand animation. Um, but the idea behind it was that it was, uh, it had the right sort of machine-like movement for, or not machine-like movement, but the right uh, characteristics for being a K2SO droid, but didn't have all the character that K2 has. Oh. And so it's almost as if, it's almost as if it's, uh, you know, there's different language for this in, in Star Wars universe, but, you know, there are some droids who have the restraining bolts, right, that sort of keep them down and keep them uh, I don't know, enslaved, but, you know, keep them in their place. He's meant to be sort of like that. He's He's got his original Imperial programming, and he's not he's not full of life and character the way K2 is. He's just kind of motoring along, doing his probably boring job of patrolling some part of the base, and... It does not have an interesting inner life. And so when we pan off of him on the K2 and K2 is all like agitated and looking around and, you know, talking to Cassie and over his shoulder and stuff, there's supposed to be a clear like difference, you know, that, that whatever, whatever happened to K2SO when Cassian, you know, wiped his original memory and reprogrammed him has created a very different, much more human, uh, lack of a better word, character or, you know, inner life than what these original, what he might've been in his former life as a, as a uh, Imperial driver. But we did joke about that, by, by the way, about the, you know, the, we'd make these dark jokes about, Hey, you know, Kay had a family and a whole life before <laughs> that. And he got kidnapped by the rebellion and they just totally what, you know, anyways. Oh but, no. Um, yeah, no, no, no. But, um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so there's a clear difference between those two sort of modes of, of being. And we really wanted it to be evident when we, when we pan over to, to Kay that, you know, he's obviously a very different, ri more rich, interesting character that we care about than, um, than just the, but your basic enforcer droid. No, yeah. I, I think it's awesome. a, a, an incredibly uh, effective detail that, that brings to life the idea that, that like you said, K2 has a rich inner life going on. It's funny that it kind of translates to like, uh, physical awkwardness almost where like the the droid that is not uh, self-conscious self-aware that is just doing what it's supposed to do moves much more smoothly than K2's kind of plotting gait yeah. um, and yet that makes him also feel alive it's so that that's uh, counterintuitive um, yeah. but it absolutely works and it's <laughs> definitely one of my favorite details in the movie yeah, oh, it's great. really effective. Awesome. It totally we, we noticed it right away, and it um, yeah, it, it makes the the characters seem um, yeah more present in in the in the world, which is which is awesome. Well, I can't remember now, but what is he? Because we went back and forth on this, and there was a there was a version in the film for a while, and then it was out, and I can't remember ever went back in again. But Cassian says something like, you know, uh, what does he say to Cat? What is you guys would know? What does he say to to K2 about that droid. Say, does that look familiar or? It's, oh, uh, uh, well, at one point they need to find a map. Um, and so Cassian says, you know what to do. And so they, they grab another KX unit and, and K has to kind of probe, <laughs> probe his brain for, yeah. for the map. And that's before, clearly unpleasant for K2. Yeah. Before, well, before that whole thing got, and that, that became a thing when the third act got kind of rearranged. But before, before that, there was a bit where in the scene we were just talking about where they're walking, right? And they see the droid coming the other way. 
I forget what Cassian said. He said something that to um, to K two like you know does that look familiar or that that looks just like you? <laughs> and K two leans in and said, "That's a female." <laughs> 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 but, but I think I think that ended up going away. Oh, um, that's funny. That's, was that's in the definitely cut. not not in the film. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it was in the cut for quite a while. But then but at some point in Saturday, <laughs> that's really. <laughs> but it wasn't funny. right tonally for the moment. They were supposed to be tense, and you know, it was too funny. Besides. That's uh, <laughs> that is something that I did want to ask you a little bit more about. If if there's anything you can share, because I know a lot of this stuff is is kind of uh, trade secret and. Um, not necessarily for public knowledge, but is there anything that was in the film that was uh, of particular interest or do, do you think that, um, you know, not having it in the film by the end because of reshoots, because of rearranging the third act, especially uh, that like stands out to you as like, Oh, this is significant. This change really changed the movie. Yeah. Um, no, I, yeah, I know what you mean. Um, I would say that in broad, in the broadest strokes, the end of the movie movie is uh, very much what you see now. In 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 that you know, because there was a lot of other, uh, speculation, obviously, about you know what well, what was it like before the reshoots and all that. And right, people there... have asked, you know, did the characters, did Jin and Cassian survive, for instance? <laughs> well, no, that was never a thing. Everyone always perished um, from quite early on in the screenplay process. So that that wasn't a thing, but. There were some things that were different. Um, for one thing, the Vader scene wasn't in there. So the Vader scene was an idea that um, Jabez, uh, one of the editors, had. Uh, when, when you know, the plan was gelling for what the reshoots would be and what the changes were going to be, uh, he was like, you know, I really think we need to get Vader involved in the action. And so he, th that idea was his. And he pitched it to Kathy and, and everyone loved it. And so it got added to the reshoot thing. So that's a difference. Um, but in terms of, Again, in broadest strokes, the, the ending of the film, you know, they still steal the plant. They still have to beam them up to the to um, uh, uh, Radis. They, uh, you know, all that stuff is is still what you see in the film. The big changes were kind of simplifying and streamlining in a lot of ways. Like it used to be that they went into one part of the base to get the plans. Then they exited the base and had to make their way to the communications tower. And so that's why in the trailers, there are these scenes of, of you know, Jin and Cassian and, and Bez and Chirrut and everyone running across this beach, getting blasted by AT-ATs, you know, and Jin's clearly got the plans in her hand there. Yeah. And, and the reason that's not in the film anymore is because that all went away when it was decided to make the building where the plans are be the same building that the communication tower is. So that whole thing of them having to climb up to the tower um, that was all new, but it was, a, again, it was a sort of, it didn't change the essential story. It just changed how we told it in terms of structure and, and simplifying um, some of that action and, and streamlining it. Um, and that in turn changed, well, what's going on with the folks outside? Um, what are they doing? Oh, well, they're creating a diversion to draw away troops. So that, those are all ideas that's, that came out of kind of the redesign of the third act. Um, the ADATs, everyone, remained in but they became more about chasing you know the this the, the team that was outside rather than chasing the whole team and so some of that action changed and when and where the u-wing crashes and who's in it and that kind of thing um, those things sort of shifted around and as well um k2so 
used to his final moments used to happen at that bunker that um, some of them get trapped at toward the end. That, that's still, you know, the bit that's still in the film is, you know, Baz and Sherrod are there and they're trying to get to that switch to flip it. Mm-hmm. That bunker or a bunker, one of the bunkers like it um, is where Kay used to valiantly die defending Cassie and then Jin as they get into one of those sort of horizontal elevators, those little cars that travel across and the doors close. And so he's defending them as the doors close and he's defending them from Krennic, who's just landed with his death troopers. That's how it used to transpire. So we, and that was one of the few things that we got actually well into in visual effect. We, we had animated that whole um, final moments of K2SO. Uh, and it was nice. It was great. And it was a nice scene. It was so very heroic. Um, I think I like the new version better where he, he's at the interior vault with them and he's defending them there instead from the stormtroopers. Um, uh, I like how that came out. I, I like the fact that he got to shoot back and pick off a bunch of stormtroopers <laughs> and so forth, oh, yeah. you know? Um, so those things change. So those are the kinds of things that change. But, you know, again, if you step back from it, it's not like, oh, there used to be a version where Jin and Cassian survived and this, that, and the other. It's like, no, no, every, everyone, you know, eventually met their end uh, on the team there. Um, but, it, you know, I think it improved. I, I do. I, it's, there's nothing in there that I go, ah, it was better before when they had this, that, or the other. They could all improve. I think the the problems, not problems, but the challenges it, it caused for us in visual effects was we were trying to get a leap forward on the big space battle because those are largely all CG shots. And so those are the kinds of things where we're not waiting on footage to be turned over from, uh, you know, from editorial, from the director. Those are the kinds of sequences we like to try and get working on early because, you know, we're not relying on footage for a lot of it, except for the interior cockpit shots. But the problem was anytime you cut to the space battle, you know, it's, it's interwoven with the narrative that's happening on the ground. It has to support that and interact with it. And so there was a, there ended up being this kind of chicken and egg thing where the you know, plans were being drawn up for the reshoots and the restructure and what new ideas were going to be a part of that. Meanwhile, we were having, we didn't want to completely put the space battle on hold and we thought we could kind of help with figuring out the narrative. So we were kind of attacking it from that front. And, and that part ended up being really fun for me because in visual, visual effects, we're not, we're not often tasked with helping with story you know, unless there's a clear place for visual effects to help clarify story. But usually that's been settled well in advance or, uh, you know, or is being addressed in, you know, between the director and the editor, for instance, not so much from visual effects. So we, we play a role. But in this case, we put together a little mini story group and it was, you know, Pablo Dago and I and Dave, I think Dave Floney came in and helped us with it. Um, and John Noll and I and uh, and. Um, uh, who else was in it? It was a small group, and we, you know, our original brief was to figure out what should the beats of the space battle be like, but we couldn't talk about that without also talking about what was going on in the ground. So it was really fun. We talked to all, we, you know, would talk at length about, well, what is Radis doing? Like, is he, is he fighting? Is he just trying to hold position until he can receive the plans? At what point does he even know there are plans to receive or that anyone down there, you know, when does Jin get the message to him? And what is the message? You know, all kinds of stuff like that, that we're not 
technically visual effects related, but they connected with what we were doing. We were trying to do with space battle. So that was uh, on one level, a little maddening because it was sort of a moving target, but on the other level, really creatively satisfying because we just got to dig into all kinds of things that we don't often get to participate and dig into. Um, and in helping to sort of structure the whole, the whole um, space battle. And, you know, you'd mentioned early on in this conversation about the, the um, uh, Corvette, the hammerhead Corvette maneuver with the space, uh, the starter stories <laughs> that came out of those discussions because John Knoll, who conceived this story, um, he didn't write the screenplay, of course, so it was Gary Weta and Chris Weitz and some others, but he, um, he conceived the story and he, you know, looking at it at the point we were at that point in the process, John was like, you know, the original crawl up mentions, you know, sure it mentions the spies stealing the plans, but it also mentions the rebels uh, having their first victory, right? Striking from a hidden rebel base and achieving their first victory. Mm-hmm. And he said, I, I don't see a victory here other than the plans. We, we need to have a victory. And so it was John's idea to, to, do, to crash one Star Destroyer into the other. And then that dovetailed with our need to punch a hole in the, you know, that was also an outgrowth of our, of the need narratively to punch a hole in the scarce um, protection shield shield to get the message out. And so then that led to lots of conversations about, well, does it, does it down the shield entirely? Does it just make a hole? Does it make kind of fritz out, which is, I think what we kind of ended up with, that it doesn't go away entirely, but it kind of flutters and fritzes. Um, But anyway, so that was John's idea. And, um, and I, and we talked it through and, and thought about how it should happen. And, you know, I think Filoni suggested that that ship, the, the hammerhead, cause I think that was a clone war ship. Um, we're like, great, that sounds good. And then, um, uh, I handed that off to a great animator, this guy, Yu Sung Lee. And I, there was like, go to town on this. And he, he basically in, in animation terms, uh, just knocked it out of the park. He just, I just let him run with it. And he came back with a, like almost a mini movie. We're like, okay, we're, we're going to have to cut this down, but this is amazing and beautiful. <laughs> you know, this is, this is going to work. Um, and so the whole space battles like that, I mean, we came up with lots of great gags. Now, some of it, a lot of, you know, many of the ideas had been explored with, uh, by Gareth with third floor, which is a previous company that, that worked on rogue one and did a lot of the early previous for conceptualizing things. So they had conceptualized sort of, some aspects of the arrival of the rebel fleet, um, uh, challenging the, um, the portal, uh, and then getting the portal shutting and, and, you know, causing a few of the X-wings to crash and some other ideas like that. Um, maybe the Y-wing run on the, one of the, that disables one of the star destroyers, I think anyways, but because things changed so much later on, um, we had to kind of not, um, junk all that. We kept a lot of it, um, a lot of individual shot ideas and concepts, but we had to redesign much of it to, to fit with uh, the new the new structure. Um, and so it was just a process of, of, you know, trying to keep what we could from the previous and then come up with new stuff. Uh, and it was super fun. I mean, the whole, you know, I remember when they told us that they were going to get uh, they were going to get some outtakes of um, Gold Leader and Red Leader. Oh, uh, or, yes. or unused takes, I should say, from New Hope. You know, that was really exciting. And we had to do a bunch of work on that because the Red Leader footage was too underexposed in the blacks. Um, the pilot looked okay, but everything around him in the cockpit was too underexposed. There's no detail in the blacks. So 
we had a CG X-Wing cockpit by chance. It, it, we hadn't built it for Rogue One. We built it for another project. And so we lifted hit the pilot off the background and put the CG cockpit behind him, but, you know, lit to match. So when you see Red Leader, it's the real archival footage of him, you know, the unused take, but with a CG X-Wing cockpit. And then uh, the Y-Wing stuff was fine. So that just got cleaned up and, you know, color adjusted and everything to hopefully look as modern as possible. But then later in the sequence, when the Y-Wing, Y-Wing, it's hard to say, Y-Wing <laughs> run happens on the Star Destroyer, the, the woman pilot is the lead in that the production had not built a Y-Wing cockpit, a practical one. So she's actually sitting in, a, in an X-Wing cockpit. So, oh, okay. so we so we lifted her off her background and put her on over the archival footage Y wing cockpit no. from seventy seven. So, <laughs> so yeah. So when you wow. see Red Leader, it's the real actor from back in the day, but over a CG X wing cockpit. And when you see the the woman uh, Y wing commander later in the sequence, it's her modern footage, but put on top of the archival Y wing cockpit wow. from seventy seven. Absolutely incredible. <laughs> I, I got to tell you, this is terrible radio, but I have the biggest, dumbest smile on my face right now. Just <laughs> this this story has, I I am I am not aghast. That's the wrong word because that would be like you, you're upset. <laughs> I, I I am just absolutely astonished and and so excited to hear your story of the production of this film. I I could not believe uh, some of the little changes that you said. But also, I agree that that what we ended up with uh, makes so much sense, and that the way that it's interwoven, I I can't believe the story of of interweaving at the moving target, as you said, uh, the space battle with the ground battle, and changing all of that. It's incredible. Uh, I, it's similarly I, bad radio. I have sat here for the last few <laughs> minutes with my hands in the air, just <laughs> like like silently cheering all of the cool stuff that's happening. Um, I, I love hearing about the, the, the footage that had to change. When you were talking about the, the shots of them running across the beach and when you talk about Krennic on the beach attacking their, their bunker, I yep. remember those shots in the trailer and how, yep. how amazing those were. Yeah, um, those shots are, are legendary in, yeah. in a lot of Rogue One fan circles as like, oh, this is the stuff that was really cool that never made it in. But like, and it was and it was really cool. Like he Krennic looks awesome coming ashore in his cape his and he just brings his gun up and he starts blasting. It's always really great. And, uh, you know, undoubtedly cinematic. But um, but I think, as I said before, I think the changes that that end up happening were for the yeah. best. And, you know, all that. and Tony Gilroy. By the way, I should mention uh, was you know brought on to direct most of the um, reshoots and kind of handle that reworking, and he was great. Uh, he's a terrific director and did a great job. And um, although um, uh, Gareth directed the the Vader scene, <laughs> so I wanted to talk about uh, Vader when you were yeah. when you were talking about how he wasn't originally part of part of it. So was he was Vader just not in the film? at all like his scene with Krennic on Mustafar wasn't in it and and the scene um no he was the... in the film he was okay. in the film and actually he was in uh there were some other scenes that ended up not in the film although I don't know that that was part of um the third act rejigger I think that might have just been other editorial changes but at one point in time for instance there was a scene with Vader and uh uh Tarkin on the command bridge of the Death Star 
Oh, interesting. Oh, cool. In front of the big, the big screen. Um, and that scene was shot, but ended up not happening. And that, that was, I think much earlier on, because for instance, we didn't do those CG Tarkin shots. We never did okay. them that, you that know, that scene went away quite my... early. So that's why it makes me think that that was restructuring that was well ahead of any, you know, just normal film restructuring stuff anyways. Okay. But this, but he just never got involved in the battle at the end. He, he, he showed up in a star destroyer. And you know, blasted some things, but he didn't. But that was the extent. We we only ever just saw him standing on the bridge of his star destroyer giving commands. And you know, Jabez thought that's crazy. We got to you know, want to see him wade into this. And he was right. You know, it was a great idea. It really, um, really is. <laughs> yeah, I I do have a, a Death Star question, and and let me know if this is too far out of left field. Um, <laughs> but uh, one of the things that I've always wondered about with. Uh, kind of how Rogue One is shot around the Death Star, because every time we see the Death Star in this movie is uh, absolutely fantastic. Like, the Death Star's scale and its menace and its just visual presence, it's its so perfect, spot on. I've always wondered how the Death Star looks when it's jumping in and out of hyperspace. We, and we wondered I've about noticed that, that it's too. cut around that. Yeah, no, we talked a lot about it. We talked about having... For instance, when it shows up at Scarif at the end, we talked about should we have a shot where, for instance, you, you can see all these tiny little ships, you know, having this battle and then this huge sphere just like whomp out of uh, and And what does that do? Does it cause a ripple? Is there, a, you know, what yeah. what's and we talked a lot about it. And then I I can't recall it was somebody, you know, maybe Gareth, somebody's sensibility was to just say, let's not get everybody thinking about that let's <laughs> let's let's just try and you know let's keep that off screen and I, it I might have it. been gareth or, or, or i don't know but you know you've always got choices like that to make you can either dig into that and get everybody's mind going about the possibilities of that you know the reality of that or you can kind of go i'd rather maybe focused on this other thing so let's <laughs> play that off screen which i think probably was why it is the way it is but we we had a whole Gareth encouraged us to go through a whole design process because, as he put it, he's like, there's only, only so many ways you can depict balls in space. Because <laughs> so, we had a number of scenes with, the obviously, the Death Star orbiting planets, Jetta and, and Scarif. And he's like, let's try and figure out some interesting ways to show that. And, you know, you asked earlier about what um, scenes or shots do, am I, do I really like. And, and these weren't even specifically animation-heavy moments, but one of the scenes I love best in the whole film is uh, the destruction of Jeddah. And the reason I like it, it's two, twofold. Visually, it's beautiful with the whole uh, eclipse sort of thing happening oh, with yeah. the Death Star and, and, and the beam coming down and all that. But I love it mainly because of how it's intercut with Jin mm -hmm. getting this message from her father after such a long time thinking he was, you know, thinking or hoping in some way that he was dead or, you know what I mean, have, with all that the baggage behind that. And then she finally gets this message and learns that, you know, he's been sacrificing his own, uh, you know, he's, he's been performing essentially a, a, a deep sacrifice in order to protect her and that he hopes that she'll get this message and he loves her. And, you know, intercutting that with this, you know, this dark imagery of this, of the, you know, the sun being blotted out by this battle station that he's talking about right in that moment. And, then the beam coming down and hitting Jeddah and causing this huge wave of earth coming toward them, you know, rocks and everything. 
that sequence I just think is amazing. Uh, yeah. it, when it was still in previs, I it would give me goosebumps, you know, even with just like the temp music and everything. And so I just I, I love that sequence. Um, but that whole bit of the of the Death Star coming into position to fire on Jetta um, was uh, an exercise in figuring out like uh, great ways to show off the Death Star and to show it in orbit around this planet and to find new kinds of visual ideas around that that hadn't already been done in, in New Hope and, uh, you know, et cetera. Uh, yeah, I think that's incredibly effective and something that I appreciate a lot of that scene. I mean, a lot of that scene is um, really emotionally difficult to to sure. watch and, and, and it's a really, really special moment in the film. But I, I, I notice and, and really appreciate how many times the Death Star gets shown from different angles, when it's only half in the shot, when it's eclipsing and, and all of that really incredible incredible stuff um to talk about the death star and specifically in that scene um do you think that uh, this and this might just be like maybe a maybe a script or story moment rather than a, a visual one but do you think it was important or or intentional visually to convey the death star both in that moment and in, in Jin and cassian's final moments on the beach kind of to depict the death star as like like another child of Galen Erso. Um, like this is Galen's other kid coming out to to attack Jin or to target Jin and and her father. I, I think about about the relationship between how Jin wears the Kyber crystal and Chirrut's line about um, the strongest stars have hearts of Kyber and how the heart of the Death Star is of Kyber. Is are, yeah. was that all all very deliberate, or am I reading too much into it? <laughs> I, I, you know, it's really interesting. I never heard anyone mention the idea of of uh, Death Star being like a, a dark sibling to Jin. Um, the person to ask about that actually would be Gary Gary Witta. He would have the best idea of whether that. And he's by the way, he's also on. You should get him on I, your. I've been tr- <laughs> I've been trying to reach out to him on Twitter. <laughs> he's we, he's a difficult person to get a hold to get a he's hold great. of. He's, he's a really nice guy. He also seems to always have a million things going on at once. Like he does this whole <clears throat> um, animals crossing, the animal like, crossing podcasting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so animals talking or whatever it's called. Um, so he's always got stuff going on, but he's great. But so he he'd be better. Um, I don't remember that discussion. I do know though, and I do understand that. I think everyone understood the connection between. You know, the Jedi used the Kyra crystals. Jin has this one around her neck. They're also used to power the the Death Star. That that linkage is is deliberate and you know and thought provoking and and all that. But in, but it's interesting what you say about you know the Death Star in a, in a sense being Galen's baby and uh, uh, you know and and that whole thing is 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 actually pretty interesting. But I I would defer to Gary on that. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, I was Definitely. just wondering. I mean, it's so it's so striking visually that whole scene. Yeah. Of Galen trying to Absolutely. communicate with his daughter, and the Death yeah. Star is also trying to get at them at the same time. And and so yeah, I was wondering if yeah if there was any conversation about how to how to convey that visually. I think it is really really effective and very emotional. Yeah. It's uh, yeah, definitely a high point of the of the film for me. I have a a, a visual like. Uh, general question, because uh, you were talking about the the archival footage and the uh, the use of the classic ships and also some of the prequel ships and and all of these choices that are being made uh, throughout the process. And when we talk about Rogue One's visual aesthetic, we talk about it as matching the timelessness of the original trilogy, 
but also having its own sense of uh, grit, I guess, is, is a mm -hmm. word that we come back to a lot, that, uh, that is separate from the original trilogy, but that lives in that same grit that the original trilogy has, if, if that makes any sense. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I, I just wanted to know if you had any uh, any anecdotes or any uh, like how did how did that look emerge, or uh, what were some unique challenges with producing that specific look? Um, in terms of visual effects, I mean, you know, earlier you mentioned the Star Destroyers and them feeling very tactile and all that. That they're a good example of. Um, so right around the time that we were starting Rogue One, there was a little side project at ILM that had to do with the fact, really, that we were doing a lot of new Star Wars projects, you know, with the sequel pro uh, trilogy happening and Rogue One happening, um, with kind of examining what it is about original trilogy, the effect shots, miniature shots, that's so appealing, and what can we learn from them and take from them, and what aspects of them should we leave behind and not, you know, not emulate and so par part of that little side project was where we took shots from uh, across the um, original trilogy shots of the millennium falcon shots of star destroyers from empire strikes back shots of the um, at ats on hoth and what we would do is for instance with the star destroyer there's a shot in empire where we tilt down onto a, a star destroyer that's kind of coming at camera and it's quite large in frame and we took that shot and we took our CG Star Destroyer asset from Rogue One, and we put it in the shot. So now there are two Star Destroyers in that shot. And we and we did a couple different things. We First of all, we did a version where we basically did everything we could to make it look just like the one in the shot, in terms of film grain, in terms of matte lines, in term, if there are any, in terms of sort of everything, both defects and, and good things. And then we did a version where we really tried to make it feel like the original shot but not ape every single thing, particularly things that were would be considered at the time defects. And, you know, it was just a learning thing. We did the same thing. We did some uh, Millennium Falcon shots where we added a second Millennium Falcon using our asset from uh, Force Awakens and lit it to look just like the miniatures so we could really sort of get a handle on what, you know, in terms of lighting ratios and contrast and color and everything else. You know, what is it that makes it, and the style of the movement of the ships through frame and all that. So we went through that whole exercise. And so that informed the look of our ship spaceship assets in Rogue One quite a bit in terms of the textures and how we light them and, and all that. But at the same time, Rogue One cinematically does not look very much like New Hope um, because New Hope is very much 70s style lighting with a lot of high key hard instruments on actors and things like that, that, mm -hmm. that whereas Rogue One is, you know, classic Greg Frazier, very kind of ambient, natural, beautiful looking cinematography. So that to me actually was really exciting because on the one hand, <clears throat> we got to do all kinds of fun, nerdy stuff that was in, you know, not just the timeline, but the look of original trilogy. And, you know, we went up to the archives at Skywalker Ranch and we took tons of photos of the models and, and geeked out and, um, use those photos to help, you know, in texturing our X-Wings and everything else. Um, but at the same time, we were putting them in a film that had a modern, interesting, new sort of feel for a Star Wars film. A little bit darker, not just luminance, but, you know, in tone. Um, and so, uh, to me, that was like best of both worlds. It was like, on the one hand, we're getting to do something kind of fresh and new with Star Wars. 
but at the same time, we're getting to play with all the toys from my favorite part of Star Wars, like the <laughs> the Yavin base that they built in the uh, Cardington sheds over in the UK, which are these huge blimp hangers in uh, Cardington, and they um, they in fact they shot an exterior of the Yavin base back in 1977 there, uh, but they didn't build the, the interior of the base there. They built it at uh, the studios where the the film was, was shot in movie studios, but we built our, our Yavin base inside one of those blimp sheds. And it was just an enormous set that had, you know, two full size X wings and then a bunch of other background sort of flats that were painted flats, just like they'd done in 77 actually to make it look like there were more ships. And then we did even still more digitally, but the set itself was just huge. Wow. And so that was for me just, tremendously exciting i was like i i just loved it there and there were you know tons of droids rolling around and gonk droids and chopper chopper was there and uh it was so fun anyways just to say so you know all the departments obviously contribute to that there's doug chang's art department there's the the the, um, you know the art director in the film there's neil scanlon's creature shop there's us doing the visual effects and post-production everything but all trying to get at that gritty used universe, original trilogy feel, but you know, with a with this sort of overlay of of Greg Fraser's very modern uh, cinematography and and Garrett's, uh, as I said before, he's a very visual director and he had a very specific he had very specific ideas about loads of things in the frame. You know, he's he's not a uh, he's not somebody to delegate that stuff, and so. Um, so yeah, it was it was a great. I think I've wandered way off the point of your original. No, this uh, is this is absolutely a fantastic <laughs> answer. Wonderful. Uh, yeah, and do you guys know this is completely off topic? But if I don't tell you this story, I'll kick myself when this is done. Do you guys know how Scarif got its name? Is that no. known? Oh no! Please, <laughs> I gotta know now. It's awesome. Um, so when uh, Gary Whitta was working on the screenplay and it was very early days on the project and he and Gareth were both had offices next to each other at, at um, Lucasfilm here in San Francisco where ILM is. And Gary says to uh, Gareth, he's like, you know what? Um, I, we need a name for the Imperial planet where they're building the Death Star and I'm, it's your turn. You got to come up with a name for this. Basically, oh, wow. tells him. So Gareth is like, okay, you know, he's thinking about it. And he, and he goes off to the Starbucks in our little campus that there's a Starbucks <clears throat> and he, and he comes up to the counter and, you know, they ask you your name, right? So they can write it on the cup. And Gareth's got this um, Northern British uh, accent, which I won't attempt to emulate, but he's kind of soft-spoken and they say, uh, you know, your name and he says, uh, it's Gareth. And so they write, <laughs> They write Scarif on the cup, S-K-A-R-I-F. And he looks at it and he's like, all right, that's great. Okay. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So that's how Scarif got its name. That's incredible. That's incredible. <laughs> that's filmmaking. That's filmmaking. Oh yeah. Uh, it, the, the thing about Rogue Fun that, that keeps bringing us back is that it feels like everybody involved was was just so personally involved, if that makes any sense. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that 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 uh, that just such a mundane inspiration, but such a powerful one, I think, is <laughs> it's wonderful. It's a, it's well, a Garrett, I mean, he he tells a story at the 
uh, Star Wars Celebration before Rogue One was made about he when they first introduced him to everyone as you know he, here's the guy who's going to direct this film he tells a story about how i think it was his 30th birthday his he and his uh wife went to or girlfriend went to um tunisia so he could visit the locations that the you know where luke's homestead was and all that and he brought with him some blue food coloring and so he could get some milk and dye the milk blue and drink it there on, at the, you know, yeah, pretty deep, nerdy, awesomely nerdy stuff. So that's Gareth, you know, and, and, you know, in terms of his relationship to Star Wars. So that, that made this film fun because, you know, there, there's a certain thing to be said for uh, sometimes a director being brought to a familiar property who the pluses of a director not being all that familiar with it, right? In, in a way that that could be a plus. But Gareth is the the other version of that where, the director is deeply connected to it, and for that reason, it's all it, you know makes everything way more awesome. And, and so he's the, he's the good example of that for sure. That's amazing. That's absolutely wonderful. Yeah, it, the the love and and care and and um, and joy that goes into making a, a Star Wars movie, I think, really comes out in in this movie, despite how sad it is and and how emotionally <laughs> heartbreaking that it is throughout it. Um, the the it's the details it's the little things that really shine through and and um kind of capture the the spirit of star wars there's i mean there's a reason that i think that the movie is is almost universally loved at least in the the star wars fan at least on twitter you see people fight about the prequels and they fight about the sequels everybody has very powerful opinions um yeah. but rogue one seems to be writing this this nice middle ground where everybody even if they don't yeah, some people are like, oh, I, you know, I don't care about the film as a whole, but I really like this part. I really like this, you know, how it filled this hole, how it, you know, every, everybody has yeah. something nice to say about the movie. Um, yeah. And I think that that really shows in the production. That's that always made me very happy because I, I don't enjoy getting, uh, you know, ending up in the crosshairs of some <laughs> argument or other about, you know, different things. And I, I recognize that those arguments are out there and, People are passionate about the films and all that, but I, I don't. So it's always, you know, made me very happy to have been involved. I, I'd say same with Mando, where it's largely pretty positive reaction. You know, not a whole yeah. lot of consternation and we're, arguing. We're huge fans of Mando. Yeah. Oh, good, good. <laughs> I mean, we're huge fans of everything. Like I said, Phantom Menace is one of my favorite. <laughs> it's in my top favorite Star Wars movies for sure. Oh, I'm glad. There's nothing ironic about it. I love the Phantom Menace. <laughs> no, it's good. No, no I, like the, I said, the... it's really enjoyed a a renaissance in terms just in terms of fan love that's made yeah. me really happy. I'm yeah. I'm pleased as can be because we know. were nope. we were at a really good age for the prequels when they when they came out. Um, Definitely. We were we were heading into our teenage years when when the uh the Phantom Menace came out. And oh, so perfect. um yeah so I mean I've always always love them and i love that they that they kind of are making a comeback but but i have yet to see a star wars that i didn't like so <laughs> oh, that's great Good uh, <laughs> speaking speaking of mandalorian uh because because we have you here uh and we would be absolutely remiss not to ask a few questions uh can you tell us what happens in season three i'm just kidding um <laughs> sure let me lay it out for you no i can't, I can't. uh the the question that really springs to mind for me uh, knowing what I know about your background and, and based on this conversation is quite infamously, there was 
a brilliant example of stop motion in season two um, with the uh, yep. crane, right? Yep. Uh, and I, I was wondering, like, were you involved in that? Did you supervise yeah. that? Uh, and what else about the visual effects styles of Mandalorian have you uh, really felt stood out to you? Well, you know, we actually had a tiny little bit of stop motion in season one as well. We, um, on season, so the whole backstory is on the season one, we were digging into doing the Blurgs and, um, mm -hmm. and the Blurgs first, <laughs> I know the name itself just it's so <laughs> No, we love they, the Blurg though. Yeah. And they first appeared in, is it Ewok Adventure or Battle for Endor? One of those Ewok specials mm -hmm. from the 80s. Yeah. And at that time they were done in stop motion and Phil Tippett uh, had done them, uh, you know, with his, his team. Uh, and so when we're getting ready to do the blurgs in CG for season one, John Favreau was saying, well, maybe we should look at stop motion for these guys. And for a lot of technical reasons, it, it seemed like that might not be quite the right solution just because there was so much human interaction with them. You could do that with stop motion, but it's just, it's harder. It makes everything harder. But what we did think was that it would probably, you know, if everyone was game to try it and the production could afford it, and, you know, people always have to budget these things out and discuss it, but um, that it would be a good style guide for the CG animators to have some stop motion to look at. And that we might even use some of the stop motion in the, in the show. We'd have to see. So at that point in time, um, well, two things. John Favreau had a relationship with Stupid Buddy Studios. They do like Robot Chicken and Mm -hmm. and stuff and he was already working with them if you've seen the show that he has this, the cooking show that john has um he does their little interstitial moments that are stop motion and they do those so he was already wor yeah. working with them on that um at the same time doug chang in his art department at lucasfilm um was working with tony mcveigh in sculpting doing hand sculpted maquettes of creatures on the on the series and tony goes all the way back to jedi um, and before, and he, he sculpted the original, uh, uh, salacious crumb and a bunch of oh, wow. great creatures over the years. So Tony had been involved with the design, the, the new design of the blurg. And so Doug tasked him with building a stop motion puppet. So, uh, Tony designed it and, and I don't know if he machined the armature himself or, or, uh, if one of the other folks around who does that work did that, but. Tony sculpted the puppet and cast it in rubber and the whole thing, painted it and got it all ready, including a little quill riding it. Oh, wow. Aww. And so that was sent off to Stupid Buddy and we kind of gave them the brief on the creature. And so they did a few different animations. They did like a walk and they did a run and they did a keep alive where it's just kind of standing there, you know, snuffling and whatever, shifting its weight. And so we got those back and we looked at them and we thought, you know, it's beautiful animation and it's really charming. It might not quite fit in, you know, might not quite dovetail with the live action, you know, the sort of modern CG effects live action thing. But we did keep one, well, A, it ended up being a great style guide for our CG animators, which was the original intent. Because everything you do in stop motion, you don't get anything for free. You don't get any movement for free. You've got to, you know, move the puppet and pose it for each frame, you know, shoot the frame, then incrementally move it a tiny bit, shoot the next frame. And when you're moving it, you're moving every part of it. You're moving the body, the legs, the tail, the mouth, et cetera. Um, whereas in CG, you, you, it's a little bit like cell animation, sort of, in the sense that you construct sort of keyframes. 
and then in, in cell animation, obviously somebody has to draw the in-between frames, but in computer animation, the computer sort of draws the in-betweens. Now, that usually looks terrible because the computer does it sort of perfectly. The animator has to go in and do breakdown poses in, in the middle between the keyframes and other sorts of things to kind of make the action feel uh, natural. But if they, you know, if, if you don't really keep on top of it, you can let the computer do a little too much and things can feel a little too smooth or a little too perfect or this or that. So having some stop motion to look at to say, look, everything is intentional. Every movement is an intention of the animator. And when things stop, they stop. You know, you can kind of get a less is more vibe out of it. Um, so it was a great style guide. But at the same time, the very first time Mando looks through his scope and spots the blurgs, that's stop motion. That's one of the pieces of stop motion that Stupid Buddy did. So it's actual wow. stop motion. That's so cool. So then as we were gearing up into um, uh, season two, uh, Phil Tippett had, had actually tweeted out saying some nice things about Mando saying, hey, you know, this really has the vibe that I remember from, you know, this kind of shooting from the hip vibe from when we were making the original films. Uh, you know, it'd be super fun to work on this or something like that. And so John, you know, John is a massive, he's not just a massive Star Wars fan, but he loves practical uh, effects. He loves stop motion. And so he's a huge fan of Phil's. And so he's like, oh, we got to find something for Phil to do. So we, so we had some meetings, you know, we, we, we looked across the whole season and figured out, you know, we thought, oh, well, this would be perfect. You know, these scrap walker things would be great. Let's, um, let's talk to him about that. So then Doug Chang and, and I and some other folks went over to Phil's in the East Bay and had meetings with him and they designed it. Phil and his team designed the scrap walker and, you know, and then they would have a communication with Doug. Doug would give them some feedback about it. And once the design was settled on, they, they built it, fabricated it, animated the shots. Um, and then uh, they got composited and, you know, stuff looks great. It's beautiful, beautiful looking. So hopefully we'll get to do more stuff with Phil. I hope so. Cause I love Phil. He's, you know, He's one of the certainly one of the visual effects gods that I looked up to uh, <laughs> growing up and getting in this business, and um, he's just a great guy. So, and his team is awesome. Uh, 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 Gibby, this guy Gibby, um, why am I blanking on his full name? But he's the, he was the animator on the Scrap Walker stuff, and he's amazing. He's like one of the best stop motion animators around these days. And I've got a buddy Chuck Duke that I worked with both at way back at Vinton's and on. Um, and at ILM, he's coming, he's worked because he bounces between CG and stop motion, but mostly he works in stop motion. But anyways, he's done loads of work for for Phil and, you know, Phil and his team did the um, hollow chest stuff for both uh, mm -hmm. uh, Force Awakens, but also for Solo. And Chuck, uh, I don't think Chuck animated on Solo, but he animated some of the hollow chest stuff on Force Awakens. And so I keep hoping Chuck will get in the mix if we do some more stuff with Phil that maybe Chuck will get in there because he's a buddy of mine. But um, yeah, so there you go. We had stop motion. And of course we also um, built an actual miniature, two foot miniature of the Razor Crest and did a number of our uh, shots of the Razor Crest as an actual miniature shot with a camera under motion control, just like in the olden days. <laughs> it, it definitely <laughs> shows. That, that that there is that level of care and detail in in the visual effects of Mandalorian. It's it's yeah. truly incredible. And uh, uh, 
Moff Gideon's uh, light cruiser in season two is a five foot miniature that we built and shot. No. Motion Whoa. control. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a little bit about the, the, the um, gallery uh, thing for man behind the scenes thing for Mandalorian. They just dropped one for season two on Christmas day. And so there, there's okay. a little bit about the, the light cruiser in that. That's so that's why I can, I can talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I haven't gotten, gotten to watch it yet. I'm so excited. Those, those behind the scenes of Mando is so, so amazing. There's so much work and, and, and really cool technology that goes into that. Yeah. It feels like Mando was really pushing the boundaries with the, uh, the projection backgrounds. Um, and it, it feels like we'll be seeing like a lot more of that in the future that Mando's kind of setting a standard. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. The, the whole LED screen volume thing is, um, you know, people ask me, oh, is it going to change how movies are made? It's like, well, not all movies. I mean, it's not suitable for everything, but for things that it's really good for, it's great for. Like, you know, Star Wars, you're trying to do a Star Wars TV series and you need to have all these alien environments and fantastical, you know, places that you, can, uh, you can't get, you, you know, you can't go and shoot on location. Um, it's great to be able to create those environments uh, on the soundstage and have the actors be able to see them and act in them and all that. It's it's pretty pretty cool. Plus, for a character like Mando who's wearing shiny armor, it's great to have all the reflections be correct. They're not blue screen reflections; they're reflections of you know Tatooine yeah. or, or whatever. So yeah, it's really yeah, the, it's the, really effective. The lighting is, I, I agree, just one of those things that just looks right now uh, in in ways that that are just completely unexpected. And then we still shoot outside, you know, like <clears throat> the whole dragon sequence in episode, uh, the first episode of season two, uh, that whole attack um, at the cave entrance was shot in a, you know, an outdoor dirt back lot that we have there for shooting things that need to look like they're really out in direct sun. Um, that, you know, the best thing is just to be outdoors for that, but it was just a dirt lot. So everything you see in the background, the cave and everything else was a, a location in um, Chile, I think, Chile or Peru. I want to say Chile um, that we sent a team down to just shoot like drone shots and photogrammetry of like real, a real location. And then we created all that digitally uh, after the fact. Um, wow. So, and same with the, um, uh, I think people would be amazed to see the behind there. Unfortunately, there isn't any in the gallery thing just because they, there's so much, only so much you can put in an hour long program, but the whole juggernaut chase in, in episodes, uh, the next to last episode, that, that whole jungle planet thing that again was just shot in a dirt lot with the vehicles that are actually moving and all the environment, all the jungle and everything around them is, uh, was created by ILM. And wow. I think that stuff's really, you know, I mean, I know it sounds like I'm patting myself on the back, but honestly, the environments aren't really my part of the process. So I feel like, okay about <laughs> talking about how amazing I think they are. I think those that whole sequence, I think, is amazing. It just feels for all the world like they went and shot that in Kauai or somewhere. Yeah. Um, like, you know, like you'd see for a, a Jurassic film where they actually go to Hawaii and shoot all that. And honestly, if we weren't, if it wasn't a TV show and if um, COVID hadn't been looming uh, toward the end there, making things a little dicey. They might have sent a team to to Hawaii to shoot at least background plates. Um, probably not the whole crew, because again, on a TV budget, that's not sustainable. But but we couldn't do any of that, so we did it all digitally, and I think it's pretty pretty darn amazing. Yeah, yeah, it turned out great. You named my two favorite, probably 
my two favorite episodes from the whole show, actually. Uh, oh, great. The dragon sequence was, as soon as it aired, I was like, well, that's the best episode of the show. They're never going to top it. And then they kept <laughs> topping it. Um, but it's still, it, I love I love that sequence so much. It all turned out so, so beautifully. But uh, yeah, I wanted, I, I did want to ask, and, and we're, I think we're pushing the two hour mark now. So maybe, <laughs> maybe we should start wrapping it up. But um, <laughs> um and I don't know if you guys heard, but my dog ran in a few, like a few minutes ago. <laughs> um, it was exactly like that that interview with that BBC um, guy whose kids oh, yeah. ran into the background and started oh, being silly in the background so of his video good. interview. <laughs> it was exactly like that, but with my exactly dog. like that, but with a blue dog. <laughs> with a blue dog <laughs> that my um, my fiance ran in behind her and scooped <laughs> her up and <laughs> ran off. It was. It was very, it was very cute. Um, but so I do want to ask, since we're we're doing all of this um, remotely, and and um, and you were talking about COVID at the end of that, are are you working on anything now, or have you been working on anything with uh, since COVID started, and and how has like that affected, like have you been working from home, and has that affected any anything for for how yeah. your work goes? Yeah, it's affected everything. Um, we. We're very, very fortunate. We finished shooting, we finished, um, you know, first unit photography on season two, like mere weeks, maybe two weeks before California went into COVID shutdown wow. last year or earlier this year. And um, and so I've been home since March uh, doing, you know, basically we, we did all of the post-production on season two from home, everyone, you know, wow. John was at home. All the us at ILM were at home. Uh, like I can't even, I couldn't even go to my office if I wanted to. My guard key doesn't work and won't work until they're ready to have people back in the building and say that's okay. So I've been, I was super proud of ILM because, you know, we'd always had some small amount of people working remotely for one reason or another. Either they're on location or they're home for paternity or paternity leave or whatever, you know, they had some reason to be home, but it was usually just a tiny portion of our company. And we had to basically send everybody home on the same day and have them up and running from home the next day. And, you know, there was like, I'd say one or two weeks that were a little bumpy with, you know, you'd have to submit a help ticket for this or that problem, or you're trying to figure things out. And there were, we had, we set up whole, uh, chat, you know, uh, uh, rooms for discussing, you know, various aspects of working from home and te the technology involved, but it got smoothed out really quickly. Like our <clears throat> IT folks are heroes, and um, so we did all the post production on season two from home, which is remarkable. And I'm proud of everyone and everything, but I really miss going into work and having dailies and seeing people. And I, what I really miss <clears throat> is being on set. Now it didn't. So far, it hasn't affected that because I said we wrapped shooting right before the shutdown. So it didn't prevent me from being on set for season two, but going forward, I think things will be a little different for a while yet. And so for the projects I'm on now, we'll have to see how much I can be on set because it's just a whole rigmarole. You know, you've got to go down and you've got to quarantine for a couple of days, you'd be tested and blah, blah, blah. So it has to be like really, really important rather than, Hey, we've got some back-to-back -back meetings, it would make sense to have you come down, want you fly down on Tuesday and fly back on Wednesday afternoon. That used to be like a nothing burger because it's like an hour flight from here right. on Southwest right. and you just hop down there and, and do it. Now it's like, you know, probably not gonna happen very much until things get back to some version of 
normal-ish with, you know, luckily we've got I, three different vaccines now. I think Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca I heard was coming. So mm-hmm. hopefully pretty soon, you know, ish. Um, and I, I'm super grateful. I know many people, you mentioned yourself, uh, you know, being furloughed or, or whatever, or, mm-hmm. or just, you know, being off work. And um, I, I know many people are in that circumstance. So I feel super lucky that I've been busy through this whole thing. Um, and that we could that we could figure out ways to do our work um, from home. So I I'm, I feel very lucky in that regard. I mean, even just within my own corporate hierarchy, if you will, um, you know, folks. There are a lot of people in the Disney organization who uh, can't work right now. People in the theme parks and all that. And I recognize that. And so I I feel tremendously lucky that we're we've been able to forge ahead and do good work. And uh, you know, even with t-shirt guy sneaking into that one shot and. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't blame that's I'm not trying to shift the blame to COVID for that. That's just that's a thing that happened. But uh, but just saying, I think we, we did good work on season two and we raised the bar and um, and somehow we did it all from from home. Yeah. 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 I guess I guess we, we got to wrap it up. We're, yeah, we did officially pass two hours. So that's cool. Um, <laughs> and I cannot possibly thank you enough for sitting here with us this long and, and answering our questions and sharing all of these amazing stories that, that you have. Um, I could probably, you know, keep you on for another three hours just asking you, you know, all the little, all the little questions that I can think of, but that's, um, we... well, now you guys know you can't share any of this publicly. We talked about that. Oh, no. <laughs> I kid. I kid. Listeners forget everything you've just heard. <laughs> Wait, are you recording um... this? <laughs> just just oh my gosh. Well, thank thank you so much. And, and so before we wrap up, uh, are you are are you working on anything right now that you can share or that you want to share with anybody? Um, I'm, and then I'm, tell our listeners where they can find you on Twitter. I'm working or... on projects that I can't talk about yet. Oh no! Um, but I am working on things, which is good. <laughs> um, but I'll I'll share them as soon as I can. And yeah, my only real public uh, facing uh, place is Twitter, and it's just I'm easy to find. It's just Hal Hickle twitter awesome. um so or how to at how hickle i should say um so yeah uh look me up there if you like and yeah, follow you um, there and make, get the first announcements on on whatever's coming next for you <laughs> when i can share them as soon as, <laughs> right yeah <laughs> uh how I, I gotta say it's been it's been an honor and a privilege and i uh it feels like a a, a modest miracle that uh everything is still kind of coming together over at ILM. And uh, I, I just I want to say that I really appreciate uh, you being here and your work and also just your candor. And thank you for sharing everything with us here. Uh, it really feels special uh, for us here now on this podcast. So uh, thank you, you so much. It was super fun. Super fun. I'm so glad. Thank you so much. Well, buddy, that concludes our interview with the great Hal Hickel. Uh, I just, I, I can't express enough how how special this episode was and how grateful we are to Hal for joining us on, uh, on our show. Yeah, it is one of the great gifts of doing this podcast that we have been able to have conversations like this one not just with Hal, though the one that we just had with Hal is fantastic, but with other people who thoroughly enjoy Rogue One and who just love 
Star Wars. Uh, it feels like uh, just one of the great honors of podcasting is to say, hey, I have a podcast, and then to be able to share that with people, right? Yeah, um, it's been it's been really, really great. And so we wouldn't be able to have these conversations without the support of all of our friends and listeners out there, uh, especially those friends and listeners who are supporting us on Patreon. Yeah, patreon.com slash those happy places is the place to go if you find yourself wanting to support the show financially. Um, and we've got so many different tiers, every anywhere from, from $1 to $5, and, and all of these tiers uh, come with special prizes and uh, bonus episodes and merch and all, all sorts of fun things. So if you want to support the show or if any of those things sound like something you would like, you should head on over to patreon.com slash those happy places. Yeah. And you know what? Uh, things are strange and money isn't always something you can offer when it comes to supporting the art that you like. So if you want to support the things that we do in podcasting, of course, the other great thing you can do for us is just to get the word out. Tell people that Rogue Fun, a podcast story, exists, uh, and that will help us reach new audiences, which is always a big goal for us. Yes, absolutely. Tweet about us. Um, send a text to your friends that love Star Wars. Um, make a billboard about us. Whatever it is that you decide that you want to do to support the show. Uh, it, all of it is is appreciated. And one of the things uh, that you could do if you joined in our, our Patreon and are supporting the show that way, uh, one of the rewards at a couple of the tiers is to get your name read at the end of every show that we do. Yeah, so uh, Alice, how about you read the list of our fantastic Patreon backers? Yes, I shall. Here we go. We've got April L, Oslam C, Charles G, Ian E, Nick H, Re J, Joe W, and Kate P. Thank you all so, so much for supporting the show and for being on our Patreon. I hope you're enjoying the bonus episodes. They're so much fun to make. Um, and uh, and yeah, if anybody else, if you're, if you're interested, you want to join us, um, hop on over. Once again, that, that URL is patreon.com slash those happy places. So buddy, if somebody wanted to contact you about Star Wars or theme parks or any of the other things that you guys are interested in, uh, where can they find you on the internet? Yeah, uh, I am always on Twitter, uh, and you can find me at Buddy underscore Duquesne. Duquesne is spelled D-U-Q-U-E-S-N-E, and it's just uh, a, a fantastic place for all sorts of conversations about, yeah, all of our uh, many interests and levels of expertise. Uh, Alice, where can people find you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, or on TikTok at AliceWhiteTHP for those happy places. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, if you wanted to find the show, you could always find it at Rogue Fun Pod. Uh, and we also have a Discord server, and you could always look for a link on one of our Twitters to join us there, where we talk about our various and sundry podcasts. <laughs> um, Alice, we actually just started a new podcast. That's true. We are uh, deep into making a new show, which is called Greetings from Cyberland, which is a lovingly critical revisit of the hit musical and movie Rent. Uh, it's been so much fun to research and prepare, and uh, the first episode is out and available, and it's really good. Um, we're talking about the, about the musical, we're talking about the cultural impact, we're talking about how relevant it is to this day in the year 2020, and now in the year 2021. 
Um, and uh, yeah, I think you'd really, if you're into rent at all or musical theater, or if you're not into those things, but want to learn, you know, what's all this fuss about, you should uh, join us on, uh, and subscribe to Greetings from Cyberland, wherever podcasts are found. Yeah, uh, Alice, uh, something I'm realizing as we continue to make this show is one, uh, Rent as a musical has been remarkably influential on just my life personally. Uh, and two, I think I like more musicals more than I thought I liked musicals, <laughs> which is a very upsetting revelation to come to, uh, because now I'm just singing lines from musicals all over the place, especially from Rent, which is full of catchy music. Um, but it has been a struggle since we started making those episodes. So uh, I hope that some fans of Rogue Fun are going to join us over on Greetings from Cyberland. Yep. Um, uh, buddy, I wanted to thank you so much for joining uh, me on uh, this episode specifically, but also in this podcast in general. Um, you are an excellent collaborator. Uh, you always have really awesome things to say. And I'm, I'm just, I'm grateful for you and uh, hope that we can, you know, make this year full of excellent podcasting. Alice, you are my best friend, my favorite collaborator, and the person for whom these podcasts toll. They toll for thee. Um, <laughs> no, I wouldn't imagine doing these podcasts without you. Uh, they are uh, absolutely labors of love uh, and because of your insight we are always finding new and interesting things to say about our favorite things in the world so uh thank you for doing this for organizing this interview it was all you uh and it was remarkably special it honestly has made my week maybe even my month uh it was that cool awesome i'm yeah i'm glad we got to do this this was really fun uh so with all of that said rogue fun pulling away. May the force be with us.